when you are. Okay, here we here we go. Um, Gregorio, do you want to introduce yourself real quick? And um, my first question will be, um, why Comancheria Studies? Mm, okay, well, uh, I guess to begin, uh, good afternoon. Uh, my name is Dr. Gregorio Gonzalez. I'm Penny Saron Comanche from uh, New Mexico, I guess. Uh, and... Uh, yeah, I am just very excited to be able to share this work that I've been doing, uh, particularly on the topic of Comancheria studies and why uh, I think there is at least an argument to be made for our ability to be able to explore uh, that sort of a research agenda, but I think at the same time to uh, broadening our scope to think about uh, why just tribal-based histories themselves are so important for folks to be at least cognizant of uh, as we, you know, are sort of starting to disentangle tribal histories from, you know, uh, I guess a broader sort of manifest destiny narrative that the U.S. settler state has sort of imposed upon tribal nations. So um, in that way, Comancheria uh, Studies is sort of a, an effort to allow particularly Comanches, um, and I, when I talk about Comanches, I'm particularly thinking about both uh, citizens as well as non-citizen Comanches uh, that live in New Mexico, because New Mexico, and, and, and I, I really want to focus with New Mexico on uh, at least in starting that conversation, because there's, there's so much of a historical narrative here um, that is very intimately connected to Comanche tribal history and political philosophy and political theory in a way um, that I think hasn't really been, uh, I, I just, I, I feel like there's so much more that can be done to explore that dynamic instead of where in New Mexico, at least we have this uh, sort of, uh, we, we call it the tricultural myth, but essentially this myth, this myth, the state mythology that teaches our kids and our children that, um, you know, that the state is only comprised of three peoples, uh, of white, white folks, uh, Hispanics, Latinos, and Native and native peoples, and that everyone else, or that essentially everyone lives in harmony and, you know, uh, hooray for, you know, this sort of idea of cultural pluralism. Um, but, uh, you know, New Mexico, in, in a very powerful way, has sort of been a, uh, a really fertile field uh, for sort of the discourse of indigenous rights uh, struggles, as well as I, I, particularly ideas of po indigenous political autonomy and religious liberty. And so uh, New Mexico has a very, uh, it plays a very profound role in Comanche history. And the fact that there are uh, New Mexico Comanche families that live all across the state still, and like I said, both citizen and non-citizen alike, you know, there's, there's very, uh, there, there's a very tangible sort of connection to uh, our Comanche relatives out in Oklahoma that um, I believe this kind of a research agenda can really help us uh, better frame. Uh, and I think it'll just allow us to really be able to resituate the conversation that allows us to really um, consider how deep uh, Comanche history runs in New Mexico, but also uh, in a way, it's kind of kind of getting to kick the tires of what we think of as tribal sovereignty and indigenous self-determination. Yeah. And so 
uh, in a, so in a very real way, Comancheria studies is is an active effort to try and sort of disrupt these uh, narratives that situate Comanches in a very uh, isolated space and really, you know, sort of foreclose the way that we think about not only Comanche history, but also that sort of, uh, and if we want to use this term, but, uh, you know, you actually, the term that um, Wallace Coffey, so the former tribal chairman of the Comanche Nation, uh, you know, he developed this whole idea of cultural sovereignty and why that, I think, why that idea would be so applicable in terms of thinking about New Mexico Comanches and those communities as well as those histories that, uh, like I said, they just, they're very tangible and they're very uh, real. Um, and, you know, just the, the fact that I'm speaking to you all today is a reflection of that reality. So, um, you know, hopefully, uh, you know, obviously, yeah, yeah I, I just I hope that that sort of a of a paradigm at least can can provide, uh, yeah, at least my relatives um, in New Mexico, as well as, you know, Comanche relatives all across, you know, Oklahoma, Texas, you know, but, but the idea of there being the capacity to have an, a distinctly indigenous homeland. And that those things, uh, at the same time, we also have to be, uh, I guess, uh, willing to uh, be, be able to hear the other side of the story in terms of our Apache relatives and, you know, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, and the, the ways within which Comancheria is a, is a creation of things. Uh, and it was it was a project that had to essentially, you know, it, it was it was a very not an imperialistic per se, but I think we have to be knowledgeable about what our other tribal relatives and what those histories and what those experiences are. And so whether it's through Comancheria studies or it's Apacheria studies or whatever we want to call it, uh, but I think there is a necessity, at least in this moment, to be able to allow New Mexico Comanche voices to be able to speak for themselves in a way um, that yeah. really allows us to do our due diligence to the just I think the the very deep histories that Comanches have here uh, in New Mexico and and particularly where I am right now in the Paso del Norte. Um, so uh, so that's kind of a broad you know a broad overview and you know perhaps a you know overly idealistic, but I think it is actually quite uh, important because it just it 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 gives us a different lens to think about uh, how we situate ourselves to the land and how we situate ourselves uh, to each other. And, you know, as a growing number of Comanche families continue to move to New Mexico and in other cases where uh, Taos Comanche families in particular, where we've always been there, um, there's just, you know, there, there's just, there's a need for us to rethink that narrative, at least within the way that New Mexico is trying to teach our kids about sort of the, the, the narrative of native histories in New Mexico. Yeah, I have, so. I have a question real quick. Yeah. Oh, does Robin, do you have a question before I ask? Um, it is kind of a bigger question, so I don't know if you want to ask yours first. Okay. <laughs> um, so my question is, um, people that don't know, that are not Comanche, you know, or not native, can you tell them what Comancheria is? How did it come about? Yeah, so so Comancheria was a term that was created. It's actually not a Comanche word, right? Because yeah. you know, uh, <laughs> the word Comanche was actually a Ute word to identify uh, enemies. So uh, so it's so Comanche then kind of gets anglicized in any way. So that, there's that whole linguistic sort of 
history that comes with just the very term Comanche, uh, but the term Comancheria, um, like I, I would say that in the not too distant past, um, it, I guess Pueblo, Hispano, and, and even Genisado relatives, like it, one did not have to make that hard of an argument to, to talk about the realities of Comancheria because these communities were actively, uh, you know, they were situated along its western periphery. And so when, we th when I talk about Comancheria, I'm talking about an actual geopolitical space that was created by uh, what we now think of as the, Co the, the Comanche Nation. But uh, in reality, uh, those, the, the, the Comanche Nation was itself not like a, a, a single collective, but it actually was a composition of different bands. And so depending on where those bands were situated, uh, that, so in New Mexico's case, the, the bands that New Mexico ended up a, engaging with the most were the Yamparicas and the Guajaris, uh, and to a certain extent, the Cotatecas, but, uh, but really, like, it was the Yamparicas who were sort of the northern, uh, the northern band that, again, had a much more direct relationships with uh, Taos in particular, but also with other New Mexico communities, and particularly Genisaro communities in New Mexico. So, um, so Comancheria was a term that was created by the Spanish and it was applied to a space of what now we call the Llano Estacado or the Staked Plains. So uh, if you, you know, if you're to go to your, you know, your, your atlas or your, your, your geography map and whatever, and you look at a, a map of New Mexico and Texas and Oklahoma, like that panhandle, but really like Eastern New Mexico, like the Eastern half of New Mexico really, uh, you know, after, yeah, I guess the first contact between the Spanish colonial government and what we think of as, as Comanches uh, was actually in 1705 in Taos. And um, so that, again, like those presences of Comanches ever since that time were pretty damn consistent. Uh, but there was always sort of a recognition that uh, once you hit, headed out onto the Llano, so the Llano being the plains, um, that was seen as a almost a distinctly Comanche space. And so uh, so when I talk about Comancheria, I'm very particularly situating it within a, a again, like I said, um, I think my ancestors in particular would not have needed much convincing to say, yeah, like, you know, or, or even to, you know, they, I don't think they would have had much <laughs> issues with identifying where Comancheria was located because uh, especially in the 19th century, uh, where you had uh, French traders, but also the American, you know, so the Santa Fe trails coming into New Mexico. So who, you know, how did they get from Independence, Missouri to Santa Fe was they had to go through Comanche territory. And so how did they get through Comanche territory? Well, they had to establish political and economic relationships with Comanche bands in order to do that. So. Like, so there's, there's a very, like I said, it's, it's a very, like, complex sort of uh, history that, that really goes into, uh, again, it, it sort of forces us to have to question the, the singularity of the Comanche Nation and instead thinking about how band-level governments were the ones that were really calling the shots in terms of how they engaged with Spanish colonial uh, administration as well as French colonial administration uh and the united states of course so uh in fact uh you know to, to talk about and i think to give a really good example of how far comancheria really 
extended to actually here in uh, in the Paso del Norte region, um, Comanches. It actually, it was, it was a, a Comanche band level government um, independently negotiated a treaty with the Mexican, so with the state government, the Chihuahua state government in uh, San Elisario. So it's just south of of uh, excuse me of um, and uh, that treaty was signed in 1834. Now, the first treaty ever that, that well, we again, what we think of as the Comanche Nation, but the first treaty that the Comanche Nation ever signs with the United States is only one year later. And yet in San Elisario, uh, that was already seen as a diplomatic space between Comanche band level governments as, as well as, interestingly enough, intertribal governments who were independently negotiating treaties with the Mexican settler states. So there's a very, dis and so I, again, my argument is that Comancheria was not just in the eastern half of the of the state, but instead, like, it, it really encompassed a good chunk of New Mexico, even to the point of where we think of now as El Paso and Ciudad Juarez and uh, in here in, in Las Cruces. So, um, so Comancheria is itself sort of a colonial construct, and yet it was something that was uh, created, and it was a, a a sort of a a project of Comanche peoples and Comanche peoplehood itself. So it's a very it's it's a very <laughs> a, a very nuanced history. But um, like I said, uh, you know, there's and there's much more that goes into it than what I just sort of uh, outlined. But I think. Uh, hopefully that kind of gives a, a, a better yeah. sense of where I'm coming from with that. It, do, it does. Robin, do you, what's your question? Do you have a question? Oh yeah. So I was wondering, so you're talking about like the influence Comanches had uh, in all the aspects that could be called Comanche. Um, but what does that influence, what does the Comanche influence and impact look like uh, then and now, and why hasn't it been as recognized? Like, because there isn't a book yeah. for commentary studies, but like, why isn't it already recognized? Mm. And what do the influences look like then and now? Yeah, well, that, that, that's a great question. I think um, to so the, the so just. To situate this even further, so the, the community that I come from is in Branches of Taos, so it's just south of Taos, New Mexico, and no no joke, I mean, it's uh, less than 10 miles from Taos Pueblo, and Taos Pueblo being the northernmost Pueblo nation in New Mexico, and, uh, you know, and if I guess for those who are not necessarily familiar with the history of New Mexico, and particularly with uh, Native nations in New Mexico, uh, you know, so New Mexico has, I believe, now 24 tribal, federally recognized tribal nations uh, whose sovereign borders now, uh, you know, lie within what we now think of as the state of New Mexico. Um, sadly, the Comanche Nation is not one of those tribes. And uh, yet uh, the sort of the historical and I would argue the ongoing impact of Comanche cultural history and in this case, thinking about Wallace Coffey's and uh, Rebecca Tosi's uh, idea of cultural sovereignty, that I think those articulations really come out when we look at uh, not just uh, we kind of what, what we do up in, in Branches where, you know, our so our songs and we have 
uh, our own kind of, uh, yeah, like our, our history is very distinct and particularly when it comes to our relationships with Comanche families and communities, uh, both in New Mexico as well as out in Oklahoma. Uh, but I think to really articulate the, the historical depths to which uh, Comanche peoples have been in New Mexico is that just west of where our community is in, in the Taos Valley, uh, so actually in the gorge, uh, are these, uh, well, what, what archaeologists, uh, including, so Severn Falls particularly, as well as Lindsay Montgomery, and so their fascinating work has been looking at uh, Comanche rock art. Uh, and so these stone stories uh, of Comanches uh, essentially being in the Taos Valley during the 18th and 19th centuries really uh, provide much more credence uh, in a way of thinking of been, again, about just how deep Comanche cultural history runs in that space that has not been acknowledged in the way that it should be. Now, as to why it should, or why that is the case, I mean, uh, it would be very easy, I think, to chalk it up to the ideas of white supremacy <laughs> and, and settler yeah. colonialism. Um, and I think in, in many ways that narrative has really taken and uh, taking a life of its own in New Mexico, uh, which is a minority majority state. And, you know, it has, it's home to uh, 19 Pueblo nations as well as the Navajo nation. And so, there, so there's a lot of reasons why Comanches are not uh, recognized as a continued sort of tribal presence, at least again, when we think about uh, federally recognized tribal nations. Now, like I said, uh, you know, there are Taos Comanche families living in the Taos Valley whose connections to that history are, they've been well documented, uh, but more importantly, those things are still actively remembered and they're actively perpetuated as, as they are preserved. And so, uh, so in a very, I don't know, it's just, it, it's, uh, I've asked that question myself many times as to why I was not taught about what, about how, important uh, Comanche international diplomacy was to uh, the just the political history of what we think of as New Mexico. Um, but, you know, that's sort of why I think this sort of a project of Comanche DS studies really opens the aperture for us to really start thinking creatively about how really, but I think thinking critically about how tribal nations were not just in dialogue with settler colonial powers or settler states, but instead we're also negotiating with each other. And so yeah. in New Mexico in particular, uh, you know, ends up kind of being this sort of, uh, what we could think of as like the Switzerland of the Southwest and that like, <laughs> that was where like Comanches in particular were able to negotiate a treaty with the Utes that still exists to this day. So, you know, so the, the, the depths of Comanche treaty making, but international diplomacy, uh, those things are very much a part of New Mexico's uh, sort of uh, cultural and political fabric. And yet the, the, the fact that there is no uh, sort of tribal presence within the, within the context of the Comanche nation, uh, again, it really is, is more of a reflection of the ways within which that state mythology has been strategically crafted to sort of uh, 
to disenfranchise, but really to isolate and really to to negate the the the, the realities of Comanche presences, uh, both mm-hmm. historically as well as today. Mm-hmm. That's good. I'm so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. So. I have a couple of questions. Do you have any, any more questions, Robin, before I ask? Uh, not at this time, no. Yes or no? I can't quite couldn't hear you. No. Right no? Okay. No, not right now. Um, so so when, I, when I spoke to you, Gregorio, I think one, one of the things that I have seen a lot in Texas is that people have a misconstruction to what Comancheria is, right? Mm. And you're talking about right now how, you know, white supremacy or uh, you know, colonialism is the reason why, um, you know, people don't know much about it. But um, how can we um, acknowledge? Do you think Camacho Rio is a way? How do I word this question? How can we um, acknowledge other tribals' history within Camacho Rio, or could we? Oh. Yeah, well, okay, so so in many ways, Comancheria, uh, I would argue at least, uh, you know, Comancheria was both a, a, a political project and, you know, an economic project, a military project. Yeah. And so uh, in many ways, it's, it, it is that multiplicity that gives us the opportunity to think about Comancheria uh, as sort of a space where uh, it was both something that was both, you know, in many ways taken by force, but also something that was strategically negotiated with other tribes in this case. So, mm-hmm. so you know, so one one really good example of, uh, of I think, uh, a possible pathway forward with that is, uh, for example, uh, the Mexican Kickapoos uh, community um, that lives you know, in, in northern Mexico, in Coahuila, uh, in Nacimiento in particular, uh, you know, one of the one of the you know fascinating histories about that particular community, but also other communities that were uh, created nearby. So uh, the Mascogos, or uh, so in Spanish they're called the Mascogos, but uh, in English they're identified as the Black Seminoles. So uh, in this case, uh, as in, 18, in the 1830s, once the uh, you know, Andrew Jackson is implementing the, you know, re- Indian removal, right? So moving the, a lot of the, the five civilized tribes. Uh, so, the, you know, the Cherokee, the, Choc- the Choctaw, the Chickasaw, uh, the Seminole, and the Muscogee Creek, uh, you know, moving those tribes from the southeast to Indian territory in Oklahoma. One thing that lots of people f- kind of fail to acknowledge about what, about that history is that at that moment that the U.S. is removing these tribes, you actually have Mexican diplomats going to Indian country, so particularly going to Oklahoma and actively recruiting factions within those tribes to move from Oklahoma to northern Mexico because the thing was was that during that time, so the 1830s, so again, this is you know the same time that the, that this band, this Comanche band level government has already negotiated a treaty with Mexico as well as with the United States. But uh, the, the problems that Mexico was having was that uh, since it had such a weak federal government, it ended up uh, relying on the states to essentially, uh, uh, essentially to create its own uh, security policy, but particularly, so not only its domestic policy, but also 
its own Indian policies. So, uh, so the northern states in particular were some of the most anti-Indian of all. Uh, but in Coahuila, um, those uh, those dip so those Mexican diplomats were successful in being able to recruit, like I said, uh, so uh, Kickapoos as well as Black Seminoles as well as Cherokees and Quapaws, but essentially bringing in a lot of these factions from these communities that were really uh, sort of dissatisfied with the fact that they were having to leave their ancestral homelands and uh, and so what the Mexican government essentially did was they kind of gave them a carrot and they said hey you know if you come out here and you settle this area but particularly along the major raiding routes of Comanches and Lipan Apaches um, like then we will essentially will acknowledge your well, you know whatever the United States thinks of as sovereignty but essentially like they, the Mexican government said it's like you can do your own thing there just you need to fight the Comanches. So in a very literal way, those communities would not exist if it was not for Comanches. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, again, I I think, you know, perhaps some may may have a different different interpretation on that. But again, like it was only uh, Mexican Kickapoos and Black Seminoles, like they were the only ones that were, that had the audacity to go fight the Comanches in the first place. So like... So, so those communities that still exist there, um, you know, like they come, they come from a very distinct sort of a relationship with Comanches that is not necessarily all too nice <laughs> or all too what we would think of as you know uh, peaceful. Right. But, um, but the fact of the reality, again, the fact of the matter is, is that those communities still exist along the, that border. And they've been able to articulate their own forms of sovereign. Well, again, what we think of sovereignty, uh, but you know, tribal self-determination in a way uh, that is very different from what other indigenous communities in uh, Mexico, particularly in the interior of Mexico, like what they're able to articulate. So, like those experiences and those uh, histories, they again, they they create a very important context for i think comancheria studies to be able to more adequately engage with its again with its not so nice parts of its history and yet uh the fact that for example like organizations like americans Indian opportunity can have people who are mexican kickapoo and like can is still can still create relations and still do good things for those communities despite those kinds of very visceral histories is sort of a it in a way it's kind of a uh, again it, it, it there's so much more that needs to be done and yet I think those kind of uh, you know it's it's those little knots in time that we can sort of see some really kind of a, and we can learn a lot from our ancestors in terms of mm-hmm. uh, you know how you know and, and what I think of in this case is how. Uh, you know, Comanche transnationalism was really uh, adamant on trying to counter the project of North American settler statecraft. Yeah. So I have a question and a comment. Do you have any questions, Robin, before I... Uh, I was just going to say, well, weren't the Comanches also used in that same aspect by the United States as like, hey, Comanches, can you come here to help quell this, you know, um, uh, 
like whatever was going on between Mexico as well, because I think mm. I, I I had read that somewhere as well as like Mexico uh, to quell whatever was going on there. They would try to persuade or insert Comanches into that mm. area because it's just like, oh, well, you know, we don't have the we're not going to have the United States uh, military going to go in. We're going to we're going to try right. to put the Comanches in there. I, I, I Well, you so go ahead. Oh, go ahead. No, I think that's where I was going to. Um, was the uh, Mexican Comanche War right? Um, mm, yeah, yeah. But before before I get we get into that real quick, um, my thing is like the reason I asked that question to go back a little bit was because mm. um, I feel like um, people tend to see Comanches in some weird like you know what what I call colonial lens or colonial glasses. They're, from my experience yeah. in San Antonio and here in Texas, a lot of people like they, they see Comanches as people they just raided, right? And right, I have right. comments they're like, "Oh, Comanches they didn't do shit except you know they were robbers." And it's just like if you're gonna talk shit about Indian people or even my tribe, at least have like knowledge to what you're talking about, and I just call us like right. thieves, you know. But right, right. but I, I do think this is why Comanche real studies is. Or even like any indigenous um, tribal studies is important because people need to understand why we did this, why we did, why right. we were war war tribe, why we were warriors, right? But right. but going back right. to you know, Robin's questions, yeah, can we get into? Because um, I heard that the reason why Mexico lost the North territories was because of Comanches and Apaches and you know <laughs> and other tribes that they couldn't colonize. So can you get into how that dynamic played out and what's the role on Comanches yeah, in that yeah. dynamic? So, so where that particularly, yeah, yeah. I mean, Comanche history is, is, is you know, very much on. a reflection of what, again, like of, a, of an indigenous, what I would argue of like an indigenous counterpoint to this project of North American settler statecraft, which... Um, if you kind of marry these ideas of white supremacy, uh, settler colonialism, and you know heteropatriarchy, uh, you know these these three sorts of you know what we could think like these three paradigms that the U.S. settler state really brings in as it's you know it's pursuing this this project of manifest destiny, while at the same time the Mexican settler state is uh, also you know so after Mexican independence in 1821. Um, you know, the, the Mexican settler state was trying to develop its own citizenship policies. And so as a part of that project, it looked to the United States as the model to implement those. And so part of that was opening up land, uh, particularly in the north, where uh, in this case, where Comanches had already pre-established relationships with other tribes, uh, whether we're talking about raiding or whether we're talking about trading. But uh, the narrative that I find to be really important is that uh, Comanches uh, were not uh, hesitant to making their presences known to settler state power. And the fact that uh, the United States, as well as Mexico, would leverage this particular tribe, but also its relatives, so Kiowas in particular, but also Apaches. Uh, but, you know, the fact that these equestrian tribes uh, had been able to independently establish their own forms of governance as well 
as their own diplomatic policies um, was something that the, again, the United States had sort of an understanding of with its prior sort of dealings with Indian peoples, you know, in the East. And yet, uh, you know, I think the quintessential sort of, uh, you know, narrative that that is very much vibrant in the state of Texas uh, is that, you know, Comanches were, are like the epitome of the Indian Wars that, you know, uh, and that, and, 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 and in very, in a very real way, um, those Indian Wars and who the United States brought in to fight those wars on behalf of this project, uh, you know, was uh, very much sort of leveraging tribal animosities against each other. But uh, so that's where we kind of hear these stories about scouts, for example. Uh, so whether we're thinking of Comanche scouts. So uh, from my understanding of, of that narrative with, when it comes to Comanche scouts, it was only one particular band that was known for having uh, essentially, you know, uh, flipped uh, to sort of to, to go with the Texas Rangers. But uh, the vast majority of other Comanches were not really utilized in that specific way as what we see with Apache scouts or, uh, you know, and, 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 and many, again, there's, there's so many uh, sort of uh, historical uh, pieces that we could sort of, you know, apply to that kind of an idea of the United States kind of leveraging those those uh, different uh, competing tribal policies. Uh, but, and when it comes to sort of that uh, history between the United States and Mexico, and particularly leading up to 1846, and then when the United States invades New Mexico, uh, and then establish, illegally establishes its own government here, and uh, then subsequently actually tries, convicts, and executes uh, who uh, both Native folks as well as Novo Mexicanos who were not American citizens themselves. Again, it shows like the United States really had no, like, it, like it, it, it had a very specific agenda for going into New Mexico in order to get to California. And Comanches were sort of seen as the, uh, the, sort of impediment uh, they were seen as the sort of the, the the speed bump but as the as the thing that they had to get past in order to do those things and so by sort of uh playing one off the other uh comanches were actually able to do something which i argue is like really kind of create a transnational indigenous nationhood which effectively sort of uh allowed them to 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 effectively to, to, to call the shots on how they related to settler statecraft as compared to what the United States wanted them to do. So, so that, that's, a, that's a very different reading than what, again, what I think even other Comanche historians uh, would, would look at. And yet, you know, with the work that I've been doing, uh, particularly the recent work I've been doing, there's a, there's a necessity for us to think about how band level governments were uh, not, again, like, they may not have necessarily been on the same page with each other. And so one treaty that was applicable to one Comanche band was not necessarily applicable to another one. But the fact of the matter was that they still understood themselves as Comanche relatives. And I think it's that sort of narrative and that understanding and that relationship that, again, I think settler statecraft in the United States as well as in Mexico has done a really good job of sort of isolating, but essentially saying that 
in New Mexico, those relationships could not exist anymore. And obviously, I, I have to disagree with that. <laughs> yeah. Robin? No, I'm just enjoying this. Okay. Keep going. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm happy. <laughs> so I have a question about um, Henisaros, all right? Um, so yeah. to talk about Henisaros, we also have to talk about the uh, adoption culture and you know Comanche adoption mm. culture. And when I ask this question, part of the question is, do you know of any other tribe that has this style of adoption culture or is this unique to Comanches from your understanding, mm. you know? Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. So Comanches are very distinct in terms of how they purpose their, uh, in a very real way. So it's a, there, it's a traditional legal system of adoption that actually is still exists in the tribe to this day. And, um, that, uh, that legal tradition is, uh, it, it it played a very important role in New Mexico uh, by uh, particularly in the 18th century when you start seeing Comanches going into Taos and Abiquiu, and uh, but uh, where they would bring captives, so captives that were taken from other tribes uh, or captives that were taken from uh, Spanish, you know, uh, settler families uh, or French settler families or so. But effectively, these captives would be taken to New Mexico pueblos, in particular, to be sold in their markets. And so, in a very, uh, in a very visceral way, um, there was a slave trade economy in New Mexico that actually existed up until the early 1900s. And um, so, past what we think of the Emancipation Proclamation uh, that Lincoln gives, uh, and uh, but the ways within which uh, that that economy was was facilitated in New Mexico was all, was equally dependent upon and really what I think uh, uh, a Western Shoshone scholar uh, Ned Blackhawk talks about pretty pretty well is he talks about it as a displacement of colonial violence uh, and his his book is more looking at uh, the youth perspective on that which is which is important um, and but uh, how that sort of the 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 sort of the realities of colonial violence and and particularly the uh, mass extermination of native peoples on the plains uh, that in turn sort of facilitated a paradigm where native peoples had to adapt to that culture and so in this case uh, so it wasn't just Comanches who then went out and started you know uh, raiding for for, uh, for captives, but also you had Navajos that ra that raided for captives. You had Apaches that raided for captives. You even had, uh, you know, uh, Hispano-Mexicanos uh, in in New Mexico who would go out and raid. And then, uh, because in, in New Mexico, one of the uh, uh, actually until again until the until not that uh, I guess not that far in the past, you know, one of one of the most important. Uh, gifts one could be given in a wedding was actually was not like uh, anything tangible, like a boss or anything like that. No, it was a, it was a a young native woman was 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 that was seen as like a, a a very nice gift to give someone for their wedding. So this economy 
was something that not just Comanches participated in, but nonetheless, Comanches were actively engaged in. Um, now, as far as other tribes and their relationships to that economy were concerned, uh, that's where we actually have in the Navajo Nation, for example, uh, you know, there's even, there's a whole clan that are called the Nakai Diné, and the Nakai Diné being the Mexican clan of the, of the Navajos. Um, uh, but also, uh, going more towards like in Oklahoma, for example, um, you had tribes like the, like the Cherokee Nation, the Ch so a lot of, so pretty much like the five civilized tribes, uh, you know, they adopted what we now think of as chattel slavery which is much more in line with, I think, the U.S. narrative of what we think of as slavery as, which is particularly connecting uh, the transformation of a human being into property, but through the lens of race, and particularly uh, treating, so in this case, treating African slaves uh, as chattel uh, and as property within uh, Cherokee and within Seminole, Choctaw, Chickasaw, and uh, Creek legal paradigms. So, so there, so again, there, there are histories of native peoples engaging in that economy, and yet um, there's a very, there's a there's a huge difference in terms of how natives then uh, sort of came to terms with its necessity to do away with it, where um, you have then the creation of Cherokee freedmen communities, Seminole freedmen communities. So those freedmen communities. Uh, are uh, in many ways not just those that were uh, the slave, you know, were the the slaves of native uh, slaveholders and owners, but instead, in many cases, these uh, folks were also marrying into those families, and they themselves were, uh, you know, native in terms of their own relationships with other native families. But the but when you had folks like the Dawes Act that comes in the 1880s to try and make sense of who is and who is not native. Well, you know, at that time, white supremacy was, you know, was running rampant. And, you know, we can have an argument as to whether or not stuff has changed since then. But uh, but the reality was that um, when you had Indian agents and, you know, uh, particularly, again, the folks working in the Indian office going out to tribal nations in Oklahoma and going to these particular tribes and trying to distinguish who is and who is not native well you have racists essentially applying racist ideas onto native peoples to say well if you if you look black or if you look you know if you didn't have this sort of a stereotypical you know uh features about you then you weren't native uh so there's so there's that kind of a history which really blends race in a way that um i would argue in New Mexico's case, and particularly the way that the Comanche Nation engages in that uh, sort of, again, that transforming of who, what we think of as captives into citizens in this case, uh, the Comanche Nation was actually the first to, to give former captives full citizenship rights. Uh, what sucks, though, is that those citizenship rights were not extended to New Mexico Comanches living here. So it was only those that were in Oklahoma uh, that were afforded those protections as tribal citizens, um, whereas in New Mexico, uh, our communities uh, were sort of labeled as Mexicans. And, uh, you know, and so in this case, again, another you have another sort of racial paradigm starting to be articulated in New Mexico that 
uh, you know, has its own sort of can of worms to have to to uh, to understand. And yet, um, again, like there, those ideas of power relations between colonial violence and indigenous self-determination uh, were very real. And um, they were something that in New Mexico were still existing uh, within Hispano households in the Taos Valley up until the early 1900s. You have a question about the adoption culture. Yeah. So when it comes to adoption, who was most likely to get adopted? Like men, women, like, I don't know, yeah, yeah, okay. boys at a certain age, you know? Yeah. So, so from what I understand, um, the ways the, the ways that folks were brought into Comanche communities, uh, it was particularly, uh, I mean, prepubescent girls were actually seen as the ideal sort of captives to integrate into the tribe. Um, however, um, there were, you know, young men, but so young men were sort of seen as uh, not malleable. And so it was typically, I think boys, I think if they were past the age of 13 or something around that age, uh, they were typically not brought in. They So it was young boys and young girls or women. So it's, it's essentially, uh, if you were a, you know, a guy and you you're you know and, and you were already kind of up there in age there was little chance for you to be able to make your way into a comanche family what would happen uh, as, would they again, like as, just kill you or? right right so whether whether it was being through adoption or uh, in other cases where comanches would uh, you know they, they would take these captives and uh, you know sometimes they wouldn't you know they wouldn't integrate them into their families and they just sell them off again so those and that that was very real in in, in New Mexico in, in communities like Anton Chico, which was uh, so in so it so Anton Chico still exists, uh, but it's in the eastern so it's like kind of northeastern New Mexico, uh, but it was sort of seen as like a de facto uh, space to sell captives with Comanches. And interestingly enough, um, there was a. a what is now identified as a Hinisaro community in uh, in um, well, not Pecos Pueblo, but um, in um, San Miguel del Vado. There we go. So it was just south of Pecos Pueblo, um, and this whole community was actually founded by uh, Hinisaros who were themselves of Comanche heritage, and so. Uh, so what the what essentially what the Spanish government did in New Mexico and the, later the Mexican government did was like they essentially created this community to to almost like to farm Comanche translators. Um, but from this community came a lot of those translators that then, uh, you know, and ended up being actually really important uh, uh, cultural brokers with Comanche governments. So like so in a very interesting way like that. Adoption culture also worked the other way around within New Mexico, where um, in this case, where uh, the utilization of both Catholic doctrine as well as Spanish legal policy uh, was sort of the linchpin for essentially legalizing native enslavement in New Mexico. Mm. Um, so, so yeah, so like adoption culture kind of went in either direction. But I think what's really fascinating about New Mexico's particular history within that conversation is that Canisaro communities 
were and maintained a very distinct form of like a self-determining community where like for example in my community in, in branches of taos like it was very common for like folks to go out and like you know if they were being mistreated by the spanish like they just say like you know throw them the finger and essentially they say no i'm gonna go out with my relatives <laughs> i'm gonna go out you know with the, with the comanches instead um like a really so a really interesting fact is that um so another Hinisaro community that was founded in New Mexico, uh, which is called uh, the Barrio de Analco, uh, the term Hinisaro was used in a very different way than what is typically used in New Mexico, because uh, in New Mexico, it was typically used to identify uh, native women and children who were taken captive and then sold into slavery uh, in New Mexico, right? Uh, but uh, in, in the Barrio de Analco's case, Genisaro was used very differently because that community was actually founded by Mexican indigenous people. So particularly uh, those from Tlaxcala, or so they're Tlaxcalteca uh, native peoples from the state of, well, what, what is now known as the, the state of Tlaxcala. And so for those that, you know, so, uh, you know, dusting off your, your Spanish colonial history, uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, the Tlaxcaltecas were the were essentially the native allies for Cortez um, when he went and invaded New Me or invaded Mexico and overthrew Tenochtitlan uh, hmm. uh, so, in the 16th century. So, uh, so what's interesting is that um, the Tlaxcalas uh, they ended up as a part of that deal with the Spanish. They said, okay, uh, not only is the Spanish going to allow them to maintain their royal bloodlines, but they're going to be able to maintain their own communities. They get to ride horses just like Spaniards because no other indigenous peoples could do that. And they could, uh, you know, they could have weapons and, you know, this, that, and the other, right? Uh, so, it, it uh, and of course, those, then, those Tlaxcala families end up becoming some of the first settlers into New Mexico, so the Barrio de Analco ends up being the relatives or, you know, the, the offspring of those Tlaxcalteca warriors. Uh, but there was a, there was actually in like, I think the 1780s, there was a uh, uh, sort of like a, the, the, I guess what we would think of as like the military commander for this uh, unit, this Genisaro unit in, a uh, military unit in the Barrio de Analco wrote to the Spanish governor uh, in Santa Fe and saying, because there, I guess there was a, there was a move to, uh, or there was an effort to move these Genisaro warriors from the Barrio de Analco out onto the plains, uh, and particularly to fight the Comanches. Mm -hmm. And so what this military commander writes back to the Spanish governor is they say, effectively they say, hell no, like well, we, we will not go out there. And if you force <laughs> us to go out there, then we're actually going to go out with the Comanches and we're going to kick the shit out of you. So, <laughs> so like, so, so like even in these, like these, these indigenous communities who were seen as sort of the, uh, the, the contact point with the Comanches, but particularly were seen as those who were uh, sort of the, the, the buffer zones between Spanish colonial power and Comanche power. Like these communities knew like that, like they, they, like they just, they understood that Comanches had a very specific way of doing business yeah. and, you know, and these communities uh, had their own ways. And yet, um, you know, they were not, uh, they were not hesitant to 
invoke those relationships that they had already established with Comanches as a way to check uh, settler colonial power in that way. Yeah. So it's a very, again, that's a very distinct history that you really can't find in, in, in other places when it comes to Comanche history. Yeah, I think I sent you, um, I think it was a picture about how deep Comanches went into Mexico. Do you know anything about yeah. that? Yeah. That, oh, my God. I was like, that picture, I was like, that is. Yeah, yeah. They, they went down to Querétaro, like San Luis Potosí. Like yeah. they, and they went down there like much later than what we think they went down. Like, I mean, they were going down there at least in the 1860s, 1870s. Like yeah. Comanches were still doing their thing down there. And like I said, you know, like, uh, it was, you know, uh, and that's but we had yeah. talked about, though, that those those uh, those routes, though, that you had found in that graphic, they, like there needs to be some coming from New Mexico because <laughs> there were a exactly. shit ton of Comanches <laughs> here. Uh, but again, that maybe that's just me to deal with like a graphic artist or something. <laughs> yeah, I have a question in an in a observation. Can you tell people where the term Henisaro came from? Because we were talking about that Netflix uh, show documentary about the Ottoman Empire. Yeah. And I was just like, I watched that, and then you told me that like two days later. I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. So can you tell me where the, yeah. the Henisado term came from? Yeah, yeah. So uh, shit, and of course now I'm, I'm I'm forgetting what what the what the name of that Netflix show was. It was like Ottoman um, Empire. It's like some documentary series. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. like the Ottomans, right? Like, okay, but so to I guess you know cats out of the bag there, but um. So the, the term Henisaro is actually, so it's not an indigenous term. It's actually a Turkish word uh, that comes from the Ottomans. Uh, so it was, I think it was spelled as Yenicheri, uh, and but it was a term that was used by the Ottomans uh, to, and it was applied onto young Christian boys who were taken captive and then drafted into the imperial armies of the Ottomans. And so, and these, uh, so this, so then, well, we now, so I guess the, the English translation to that word are Janissaries. And yeah. so uh, these Janissary units uh, were like the Sultan's like elite military corps. Like they, they were, and so in this case, like uh, one way that uh, we can think about this is as young as they were and then being, uh, being converts to Islam, um, you know, like a really... And I, I forget where I heard this quote from, but uh, effectively, the idea is that the most the most devout uh, believers are those that actually convert. Yeah. And so in this case, Janissaries were, you know, like they were seen as like the epitome of like the like loyalty to the Sultan in the Ottoman Empire. And so these were the guys and they were not guys to be fucked with like they were <laughs> so sorry I, I pardon my language oh but, it's okay um, we say that shit here. <laughs> but uh you know like they effectively like yeah like they, they went out kicked ass and took names and but the term itself kind of makes its way from north africa or so well really from the mediterranean and then it spreads to north africa and then it makes its way up through the iberian peninsula and then it makes the journey with cortez to the new world quote unquote new world and somehow it makes its way up to new mexico so like what's really interesting is that nowhere else but either in the americas or in the world but really nowhere else in the americas is genisado used in the way that it is used in new mexico 
And so that's why, like, it's really important to understand, like, the sociocultural and the historical context as to where that term kind of makes its own sort of, it kind of has, it, it takes a life of its own in Mexico because uh, the friars that were essentially Christianizing, uh, you know, uh, the natives here um, had a very uh, inconsistent policy for applying the term genitaro onto native bodies. So sometimes uh, these priests would write which tribes they came from. Other times they wouldn't give a shit. So it like it was really dependent upon what this one priest would, you know, what his thought was on the day. It was like, oh, am I going to write that this person was youth or am I going to write that this person was piety? And so, like, so when we look at the historical record, like, we have to be incredibly critical of it because, like, that even then when we see Genisaro, like, existences manifest within the archive, like, that is, like, just, a, like, a very minuscule reference point to something that is much bigger. Um, and you Again, like we're almost entirely dependent upon Spanish colonial constructs in order to make sense of that history. Oh yeah, which is kind of like ironically what happens a lot with our native history and trying to keep track of even our own roots is we're mm. we're sadly dependent even on churches to to recall those records. You know, like mm. uh, here in the Northwest, we have like the the Mormon Church was a big thing so or it was a, a big influence here so a lot of uh, native records for our tribes over here are dependent upon the, the mormon church and then their uh entire philosophy for their religion has to do with you know that native people were their lost tribe you know so it's just history that goes on there um but i was just going to make a comment i was like you should consider going on the joe rogan show because he's completely obsessed with Comanches (laughs) 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 and he definitely needs somebody that knows what they're talking about so unfortunately he had like somebody on there and they were good and they were knowledgeable but they just didn't make like a huge impact on kind of like influencing him or his his viewers (laughs) like Mm. I would love to to listen into all of this (laughs) that would be pretty cool (laughs) I don't know him myself but (laughs) Yeah, he, 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 he. I don't know how you feel about was, it, Gregorio, but he brought what's his name, S. C. Squin. I don't know if you heard of this person, mm. uh, Comanche. He wrote the uh, Empire of Sever Moon. Oh, that's right. Yeah, so that Comanche oh. were, were, were mad that he that he came on because even right away within like the first five minutes of the show, he was calling Comanche savages, right? Yeah. And I was just like, what the fuck is this guy talking about? So like. It was. It, it didn't take oh, long wow. for, for for him, for me, even me or any native person to be like, you know, Gwen is like, he needs to fucking shut the fuck up. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> we need somebody else to <laughs> like, to like, you know, um, talk about Comanche stuff because that dude was really bad. So yeah. yeah. And just to harp on like the importance of Comanche studies or Comanche studies, or even just indigenous native studies in general, is that there is such a like this is 2020 and people are still pretty ignorant to the the formation of the United States or what state that they're in because they're just into this uh, rhetoric that the, the states give them or the United States give them. And then you have someone like Joe Rogan who like who wants to be someone of a higher consciousness and learning 
um, about who he is and where he's from and things like that. And then he gets completely enamored with the history of the Comanches. You know, even if it is written from this like non-Comanche perspective, but I'm just wondering is like just having those voices of actual native people and native Comanches people telling their story, like the real people telling their story and how that would, you know, influence some like Joe Rogan or even just like a, a, a non-native in the United States or even a native in the United States because I'm learning a lot myself, you know. Um, mm-hmm. Growing up in the Northwest, you know, I had my own father who was Comanche, but he, um, you know, he had a lot of hurt there and he had a lot of things that he didn't always teach us a whole lot about his culture or his history, you know, um, just because of the influence that he had from growing up, you know, in Oklahoma and things like that that were just just had bad family situations there but you know that just again harps onto the importance of these kind of studies going on in major universities and hopefully trickling down even just to uh, the grade level so that you know they're not depending on empire of the summer moon and they're not you know depending on all these still into this day you know uh literature and history written by you know people who are not even from those cultures Mm. Yeah, but yeah, you know I, that's that's sort of yeah. the the it it yeah it it is very sad that again in 2020 we're still having to confront these sort of uh, uh, terminal narratives about you know like the vanishing native or the or again or the or the native savage and you know and of course Comanches then kind of get rolled up into uh, you know epitomizing these again these very strategic narratives and these uh, uh, frameworks that, again, are, are, are purposely designed to sort of support a specific construct of how Native history should be seen, right? And um, and it's so it's, it's unfortunate that I think, you know, folks like S.C. Gwynn can have that sort of, you know, they can have that that mic, right? Like they, they can have that platform to be able to, to uh, to essentially to, to spit that kind of rhetoric, and yet, um, you know, that, that just makes this work that much more important because if, you know, we're not willing to kind of uh, speak truth to power in that way, um, then it's kind of that, I just, it seems like there there's a necessity for us to to, I guess to take responsibility for what those what those histories are, right? And I, but not just not just histories in terms of like thinking it of like it uh, as an like as an entombing narrative, right? Like something that's like that's invoked in order to just like be left back and like to be negated as like non-existent. But uh, in this case, like making the connection between what those histories are, for example, like. Comanche transnationalism in New Mexico and the fact that New Mexico Comanches are still enacting those kinds of, uh, of relationships uh, in ways that really challenge a kind of U.S.-centric narrative of what tribal nationhood can look like. And so, like, there are opportunities for us to be able to do that, and yet the challenge is, is that there's so, like, it's almost like there's such a foundation that is strategically set up against our ability to have those conversations that, right. uh, you know, it, 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 for many, you know, it, it can be overwhelming. But um, I think 
again, and I, I don't want to perpetuate or just kind of, you know, think of, think of my work as kind of being the standard setter in any way. But I think I just, I feel like there's at least where I'm from and where my daughter lives and, you know, just like there's a need here to, 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 to talk about Native histories in a way that is much different than the way that social studies teachers like encourage our students to think about and if uh, this is a pathway to be able to do it uh, whether it's through Comancheria studies or whether again it's just through an indigenous studies perspective um, I think uh, you know that I don't know that that, that work needs to happen but it, it shouldn't just be happening in New Mexico right um, right. this, this is a much broader again this is a much yeah. broader sort of a, of a of a paradigm that we're that we're coming to terms with uh but uh you know hopefully there are those that will want to maintain that sort of critical thinking in a way that does not sort of give the settler state more credit than it is deserving of really i have a question yeah and have comments too if you don't mind yeah, so I would say that um, he did. Joe Rogan did bring on uh, was Shannon O'Laughlin, or you know, she was she's a native lawyer, and that was I think a really good episode about indigenous people, right? And um, he, you know, what the thing about Joe Rogan is, he brings up a lot, of, you know, a lot of people on his show, but he did ask questions about decolonization without using that that word. And I brought that up with Robin. Right. And I think um, Joe Rogan, for a non-native, he really asked good questions to, uh, yeah. to to Shannon. And I think he brought up like he was like, how can we how can native people how can we fix all this? How can we fix all this? To me, translates to how can we decolonization? How can we, you know, have, uh, you know, like decolonization happen, you know? So I think that's why I think decolonial theory the colonial theory is really important for, in, in you know, in Native academia, right? And I think, um, you know, my experiences at at UC San Diego they didn't have a Native study, so it was kind of hard. And in my senior year, they had um, uh, they were testing out Indigenous studies. They were like putting classes together, you know, because I I made a ruckus, but that's another story. But you know, um, they, they 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 put class together. And the first class they had was decolonization, a class just about decolonization, what it looks like, and people there didn't know how. You know, I was I was surprised that they didn't know they they couldn't have a vision. So I think. It is important for us to look back about Comancheria studies and Comancheria history, but it's also important for us to look forward to see how, what decolonization looks like, you know? So mm. I think it's, it's both equally as important to, uh, for, for indigenous studies, you know? This is my right. I, I agree with that. Uh, and you're totally right on that particular episode. It's like uh, Joe Rogan was trying to find a way to express what he was saying. He was essentially asking his guests like about uh, decolonization, but he just didn't have like the words to say it. He didn't yeah. really understand the vocabulary. And then I also think what's important is that um, non-natives, you know, can be colonized as well exactly. <laughs> so it's just kind of like you know and they don't really understand their own uh contributions 
to colon to colonization and current colonization, neocolonization, uh, they don't even realize that they have been, you know, like uh, geared through their life to contribute to that, nor do they recognize it. And uh, and I think it even goes beyond uh, privilege not being able to see it at that point. It's just sometimes they just it's just so integrated that they don't even understand. And then hearing that word in general, decolonization is just always like a big. I don't know. Wherever I go, when we talk about it, it's always like a big thing. Uh, no matter what group I'm in, it goes on yeah. forever. We talk about decolonization. <laughs> but yeah, um, do you know about Comanche rock art? Because you brought it up earlier. Do you know? Like, can I ask you questions about that? Yeah, I mean, I yeah, I think I could talk a little bit about it. I think that the folks who would be much more, I think, knowledgeable about that work is, of course, Severin Falls and, and Lindsay Montgomery. Uh, yeah, but I, I mean, I. But I, I, I am familiar with the, with the project, though. Yeah, so the reason I ask you, I don't know the conversation, if you remember the conversation we had, we were at, in Hawaii together, and we were going to that lava, the lava park, I don't know what it was called, like the, the Hyrule. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that, you know, the, yeah. But so, so there was, at my time during UC San Diego, one of the professors uh, was showing me the work of another professor i forgot his name and he was telling me about rock art he was telling me that comanches used to draw on top of other people's rock art yeah yeah <laughs> so you, do you know about that or yeah yeah so <laughs> like I, I think um so that particular project that severin and uh and Lindsay, uh that they yeah that they that they were able to facilitate is it's pretty. It's pretty brilliant because they, they actually focus specifically on um, how Comanches, in this case, like when they were when they were going through the Taos Valley, um, you know, they would come across these uh, these boulders in the gorge that uh, you know had ancestral Puebloan uh, writings on them, you know. Yeah. And uh, and so in this case, uh, like one one example that I thought was pretty fascinating was, uh, I guess there was one particular uh there was one particular carving of uh of a snake that was on this again on the stone and i guess uh, this comanche guy like rolled up and like essentially drew over it and like made the snake look like a phallus <laughs> and so like yeah. it's a very interesting way of like kind of repurposing <laughs> these like <laughs> these ancestral pueblo and like uh carvings that again had their own they had their own significance but like comanches were very adamant on making their presence known in that space and so you know it again pueblos had their own you know they, they, they have their own relationships with with the Comanches uh, that actually can be seen to this day in Pueblo uh, uh, villages, like where when they have their dances, uh, a lot of times uh, when they have their social dances, some of them will be their Comanche dances. So, like, right. so Comanches like have a very powerful impact on New Mexico native tribes in a way that again is not really acknowledged, uh, but it really comes out when it comes to those Comanche stone stories. Yeah, it, that's a, that's one of the things that Professor showed me was he was like, this is, you know, not Comanche original art, but he was like, uh, the professor was telling me that Comanches used to draw shields on top of other people's arts and also like mm. like dick pics. 
you know so i was just like what, yeah, the, f- yeah. what the fuck <laughs> yeah i was yeah. like dude what oh, the fuck <laughs> so i was just like dude <laughs> it's like rock art dick pics but <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> the original yeah the original <laughs> said nudes kind of thing <laughs> but yeah it was it was wild i was watching i was looking at these you know like these pictures and like you know um, there's like different colors from like this is the Pueblo art, this is the, where the Comanche contributed. And I was like, I brought this up to the Comanches and they were like, we didn't do that. I was like, are you sure? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, there's, there's something pretty, I would there's do. pretty definitive evidence. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> but yeah, but Robin, do you have any questions about anything before I move forward? Uh, uh, no, probably just your. uh, I think he had a fourth question about. Uh, so I'll let you ask it since you wrote it. About about what? I think it's Mexican nationalism. Oh yeah. So the... um, me yeah. and you, we had a really good conversation about um, Jose Vasconcelos. Can you can you tell us from your understanding who he is and what um, his contribution to Chicanismo is? Yeah. Okay. So Jose, Jose Vasconcelos is a, he's an interesting character because he like, okay. So he was, I mean, he was a writer, he was a philosopher, like this dude, like was kind of a, a, a kind of a, a jack of all trades, if you will. But like his sort of his main work that he's known for today is his work on La Raza Cosmica, yeah. the cosmic race. Um, and it was that sort of philosophy uh, that kind of, you know, it, it impacted kind of Mexican society in a way that we still see to this day through the lens of what we think of as mestizaje. Yeah. So mestizaje being this sort of racial policy that um, kind of says, well, you know, in Mexico, because the Spanish came and because we had a shit ton of natives and we had black folks, like, like we ended up creating this new race, the cosmic race. Um, and, uh, and so that narrative um, became a very central part of Mexican nationalism, yeah. but Mexican uh, sort of national identity uh, which was was that uh, it was a way for the Mexican settler state in this case to essentially deny indigenous self determination exactly. uh, of uh, you know hundreds of, of of these communities by essentially saying well we're all native yeah and because we're all native then like we don't really need to be like acknowledging like the distinct like political spaces that indigenous communities have created or their economic structures or their legal systems so like. It was effectively, it was a way to say, well, because we're all Native, there are no Natives. Yeah, exactly. And that's the thing about um, his book, La, La Raza Cosmica, is that some, somewhere in there he was like, oh, the Spanish colonized the indigenous people because they loved them. I was like, oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> it was really rugged <laughs> reading that book. I was just like, this is the worst like, anti-indigenous yeah. you know, book. It- yeah. It's horrible. Right, right. You know, so that's the thing. That's the thing is that, like, when when he was writing again, like he's writing right after the Mexican Revolution, mm-hmm. um, and so like th- again, this is when Mexico's like having this like, you know, having to come to Jesus moment where like they're like, well, fuck, like, how do we, 
how do we see ourselves when we have, you know, like, so you had Emiliano Zapata, who was indigenous himself, spoke Nahuatl, and like, you know, like, they, so again, like, there was this very, like, you had all these, like, caudillos, or you had all of these, like, sort of political figures that were each kind of vying for their own forms of power, and yet Zapata's was very different than what we think of uh, Alvaro Obregón or even uh, Pancho Villa, because Zapata's, like, was very distinctly grounded in his community as an indigenous man, mm-hmm. as compared to uh, Obregón and uh, Calles and even, you know, I mean, uh, one of the most, I think, uh, you know, sort of a, a polar opposite of who Zapata is often equated to is Pancho Villa, because yeah. Pancho Villa was up in Chihuahua. And so, like, that's where, like, in northern Mexico, like, there's this very, like, open, like, white well i go what we could think of as like like white nationalism but white supremacy like but essentially this idea of like indigenous folks should not exist in the north uh and i mean and there were there were immigration policies that were being instituted by the mexican government throughout that period um in the early 20th century even the in the 19th century uh that was actively recruiting eastern europeans uh, uh but essentially trying to uh, exactly. settle these lands the same way that we see Manifest Destiny yeah. utilizing, uh, you know, Anglo-Americans to move out west. Yeah, uh, a- but particularly yeah. then transforming like Scotsmen and Irishmen. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that whole settler colonial policy, uh, you know, utilizing those white bodies to then become white Americans out in the west because yeah. who their antithesis were were brown-skinned folks, but particularly native peoples, right? Yeah. So, like, so, so, but Vasconcelos, like, his work as, so, you know, this guy was actually, like, he was the secretary for public education. Like, he was also, like, the head of their, like, UNAM, so the the National University in, in yeah. Mexico. Like, uh, so this guy, like, was a, he was a thought leader in Mexico at a very, uh you know at a time in mexico where they're trying to make sense of who the hell they are as a as a as a nation but really in this case as a settler state um that wow. that again we see impacting uh indigenous folks to this day where again like uh the the, the notion of sovereignty amongst you know indigenous peoples in mexico is is a very different story than what we see with U.S.-based tribes. Exactly. And so, like, and, and it's a and it's a reflection of his work with Mestizaje in particular. Yeah, do, but I do have I, some comments. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go for it. Go for it. That's the thing about um, so many comments about uh, Jose is that you know, first off, his work is really disgusting. But lately, within this last what 2019, I have a lot of um, quite a few Mexican people that. Mexican indigenous people that have sent me articles from, you know, scholars in Mexico, how they have traced um, some of uh, Jose's work and how he was actually being funded by like the Nazis, right? To spread Mm. Nazi propaganda in Mexico through his newspaper, Timon, right? And if you read La Raza Cosmica, a lot of that stuff sounds very Nazi, if you really think about it, right? And it's just like, what the fuck? Like, it's it, to me, it's like, you know, like, so it's, it's erasure of native people through mestizaje, right? 
like it's like we're all indigenous people, so we don't have to talk about indigenous sovereignty in Mexico. So it's like we're all indigenous, but Mexico is not all indigenous. And just just about if we just talk about Mexico's immigration policy, it shows that Mexico is not all indigenous, right? right. And right. that's the conversation that I think he he pushed to the side by talking about indigenous rights or indigenous sovereignty is by saying we're all indigenous in Mexico. You know, it's like, are there indigenous people in Mexico? Yes. A lot of people were displaced, but, you know, to, to uphold this person's work is really, to me, it's really discouraging when I go to like Chicano, you know, um, conferences or Chicano panels, you know, and I went to one here, and, and and I'm not saying this is the one I went to. I only went to one, but I got, I, I do a lot of Chicano stuff. I go places, you know, um, and I I, I want to see what they have to say about indigenous issues. And then the latest one I went to was here in San Antonio, and they had a panel, and they were pushing Jose's work, you know. And I was just like, this dude's work should not be pushed as pro-indigenous, right? Mm. But then you have the other sex of Chicanismo. We're like the third or fourth wave. I don't know where we're at right now, which wave of Chicanismo we're at. But yeah, but they're like, oh, we, we, you know, disavow Jose's work because he was racist against, against indigenous people. So I was like, okay, you disavow um, Jose's work. But how much did Jose Vasconcelos like contribute into fa- founding Chicanismo? You know what I'm saying? Like how, Mm. So it's like, uh, how do you know about this? Do you know how how you know like? Well, the, I mean, yeah. So I, I mean, like uh, off the top of my head, I mean, so La Raza Cosmica, like, was it was a sort of a standard text that you had. You saw a lot of Chicano activists uh, in the '60s and the '70s, in particular in Texas and in California, yeah. um, really drawing a lot of that, uh, again, that sort of that initial ideology from, right? And, uh, yeah. you know, and, and in a way, uh, you know, it, it it was sort of like a wave of Vasconcelos, like trying to allude to like, a, almost like a post-racial Mexican society. And, uh, but by utilizing native bodies as the impetus through which like it, that, ideology is unquestionable because like because to again like to to this notion of mestizaje is about saying you know we're all this and because we're all this then we're something else yeah and the and the the problem is is that you know it i i think you know in tribal communities it was it the idea of marrying out or having kids outside of your community is not necessarily new. (laughs) It's not necessarily like, you know, I I think, you know, we're we're, in many ways, we're reflections of it, but, uh, but I think there's a difference. And this is actually something that was, was articulated pretty well in, in, uh, in 2015 with the, uh, the native studies or the native American indigenous studies, the executive committee um, put out this statement on looking at indigenous identity fraud and um, one of the things that they talked about, um, which I, again, I, I think is, is pretty important for us to keep in mind is that when we're talking about indigenous identity, we also have to understand that there's all these layers of these settler colonial logics that are strategically exactly. pitting indigenous communities against each other to, again, to sort of verify the settler state's capacity to authenticate 
our capacities to exist, right? Mm -hmm. And um, in this case, like we just we we have to think a bit differently because you know it's not just so. In this case, the NASA, the executive committee, argues that it's not just about who you claim, but it is it is equally, if not more so, about who claims you. Yeah. So in this case, you know, who, who are you related to? Who are you accountable to? And this, and I think the, the, the way La Raza Cosmica was like kind of seen as an impetus for this post-racial futurism of of Mexican society uh, that again was trying to coalesce and trying to consolidate political power um, in a way where, again, you still had a very vibrant indigenous like indigenous collective presence in the country. Uh, and so Vasconcelos kind of had to find a way to sort of neutralize it uh, as a way to sort of uphold the sort of the political integrity of the Mexican settler state. And so, you know, that's where you have Mestizaje really kind of um, becoming a sort of standard bearer for these initial Chicano intellectuals. But uh, you know, I think as you as you pointed out, you know, like there's there have been multiple waves with, of, of 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 intellectual thought within that movement that, uh, you know, in many ways, um, you know, have you know. So for example, the fact that Mecha, uh, uh, you know, sort of uh, you know, Mecha being the Movimiento Estudiantil Chicanos de Aslan, I think, yeah, but they changed like, their name, yeah. But, yeah, they changed their name because they were like, yeah, Aslan is pretty fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> the, the narrative of Aslan like is a pretty messed up. It's a pretty messed up thing that is purposely utilized to sort of negate the distinct political presences of indigenous nations who also existed alongside what we think of as, you know, the Mexica uh, in Tenochtitlan. But again, like. So th- there is a consciousness raising within those within those spaces that is really encouraging, and yet um, that is a it is really important to acknowledge that Vasconcelos, like his ideology, it, it did play a factor in 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 that in that creation story yeah, of Chicanismo, right? Exactly, and that's the thing about um, about this whole thing about if you, if, so people that are listening that don't understand what Jose Vasconcelos wrote, he wrote that since Mexico's having this immigration policy where people are coming from all around the world, he believed that there's going to be a new race, a superior race, which, you know, just the word superior race sounds very Nazi, right? So made out of like indigenous, white, black, and Asian, and everything else from around the world. And that's going to come from Mexico and be like this like superior race, you know? But that that itself is very like, um, it, it, it's about erasure of indigenous people because it's like, oh, so, you know, so this new race is going to come in and replace the indigenous people. It says, literally says, replace indigenous people, right? So, mm. you know, in a time where there are still, there right now, there's still indigenous communities in Mexico, right? So this dude's talking about replacing indigenous communities with this new race. You know, how, you know, it's really sick. And in this book, from you know, from what I see, he talks shit about Anglo-American. You know, the, the Anglo race is fucked up because of this. It's fucked up because of that. But we're gonna come out. This new race is gonna come out more dominant than this white race, American race. And it's just like, dude, like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> you know, <It's- laughs> it just sounds like two sides of the same coin because 
essentially it's like the reverse of the Indian problem that the United States had and their method was to try to assimilate native people to be more yeah. uh, Anglo. Whereas like that kind of sounds like the opposite. It's like, well, no, we're all just going to become indigenous. And then, you know, that way we'll erase them that way instead of like trying to erase um, just native people in general to make them more white, you know? Yeah. So, well, I, you know, so one, one thing that we, you know, we also have to keep in mind too, is that, uh, specifically at, at around that same time that Vasconcelos is uh, again, so he's so Vasconcelos is you know is is one person, right? But he himself was part of like a movement of Mexican intellectuals, yeah. like during uh, you know particularly during the early you know like the the nineteen twenties, right? But like but like in, and it was specifically during that time when like the United States was trying to retool its own Indian policy, and so no shit. Like, who did the United States go to? So particularly, oh, my God, um, his name is John Dewey. John Dewey, uh, he, was a, he was a political philosopher, but he was seen as an education leader out of Columbia University. And John Dewey, um, some of his students were actually some of these, these guys who, they were Mexican students who studied at Columbia in New York. And then when they, when they got their doctorates, they went back to... Mexico essentially to put that shit into practice and so what Dewey was then doing um, was like uh, a lot of these guys uh, so Vasconcelos being one Manuel Gamio being another uh, even Moises Sainz uh, so Moises Sainz was really kind of uh, uh, known as the guy that was like kind of uh, the indigenous education policy expert for Mexico and so Dewey ends up um, uh, inviting Mon uh, or Moises Sainz out to uh, actually to New Mexico to do a lecture and what is the, the lecture is all about uh, how Mexico should be the standard for the United States to do its Indian policies That's but particularly wild. when it comes to education policy oh, wow. God damn it. And so it was specifically about an assimilationist discourse that that Moises Sainz was was he actually spoke about in Albuquerque New Mexico holy but, shit so so again that shows that like Mexico's indigenous like its indian policy and the united states's indian policies like they're not so different yeah mm -hmm. you know like yeah. and so like what so that's why like i think it's really important like to like in order to draw those connections like like to to utilize like terms like like the one like you know one I I thought is like that might be better for making those connections like North American settler statecraft because like thank you those <laughs> those same discourses like they, they're yeah. operating on either sides of the of the U S Mexico border they may be one just being used in English and the other ones using Spanish but exactly. it's still the same yeah. logic that's the thing about Mike's you know my experience for. From what I experienced with um, with Chicano professors, I'll give two. One, there was a Chicano professor that a future guest is going to talk about. Um, said that, uh, what well, this professor said that we should get rid of indigenous studies and replace it with Chicano studies because Chicano studies is pretty much indigenous studies. And <laughs> I was just like, what the fuck is that, right? Two, wow. I, had, I had another professor tell me, tell me that indigenous sovereignty is just white people shit. And I was like, excuse me? <laughs> I was just like, no, it's no, not. No. I was just like, this is wild how these chick professors, right, are pushing like mm. this like really weird 
anti-indigenous narratives this like like oh we're all indigenous i have another professor that's like literally stalking me online like slandering me but i was just like dude what the fuck's wrong with these professors like you spend all your no, life I mean, yeah i think it starts even earlier from there you know as i mentioned i grew up in the northwest in on a, a native reservation indian reservation the yakima reservation and we have a large uh, Mexican population here, and I hadn't really realized the influence that I had, even on my early education. I'd have, um, you know, it was always hard to see teachers reflected who I was. We had maybe one Native teacher, even though, you know, we were on a reservation in our public school, and the majority of them were either white or Mexican, and then we, I would have, like, a, like a Mexican teacher male tell me you know, that we shouldn't be learning anything about the tribes here because they're conquered. Oh, my so, God. You know, we don't, what the we fuck? don't need to be learning about that because they're conquered. <laughs> oh they're conquered God. people. And I was like, what? You know, this is me in middle school. And, you know, I, I always knew that in, you know, inside me that that was wrong. But, you know, as a middle school age student, this is somebody you look up to as an educator who was brown, right. you know. And I was just like, I didn't know the words then, but you know, yeah. now I know the words now. I'm just like, really, <laughs> really? You know, like, so that... I'd be, I'd be interested because now, like, so I actually, I had a student um, here at uh, at, uh, at well, during my time at Colorado College, and uh, he was uh, like, so my understanding is that like I, he he spent, I guess he grew up in that area as well, and like uh, near the Yakima Reservation, but oh, yeah. uh, but this student's Purepecha. Oh, and okay. um oh, and wow. so the purepecha and so it, it's my understanding that like that it was particularly like in the yakima reservation that there's like a lot of those a lot of those like mexican families were actually their purepechas coming from michoacan mm -hmm. um wow. i'm not sure yeah so like i so i know that like again so that, this is one student's you know kind of uh it was kind of his, his experiences with that but uh, but i i think it's it's a, a broader reflection again of like uh of a of an undergirding logic that I think even people of color can start replicating onto indigenous peoples in a way yes. that yes. is quite quite uh, you know disconcerting and it's quite scary in many ways and so like that again it just shows even that much more of a reason why like we have to remain like critical about how even you know like faculty of color can you know how they approach the discussion of native studies but particularly when it comes to even like working on um you know working on native reservations like uh there's 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 so much that gets sort of uh displaced onto those native students uh and it's quite sad you know that in in this case you know that you had to have a you know like a, a mexican teacher essentially kind of perpetuate that that sort of settler colonial logic on yeah and then they go students. into other classes with white teachers just giving that out you know so it's like oh, yeah okay. it's good you know so that's the thing is like so in new mexico like yeah like that that was that was a very common thing when i grew up too is like you know you're having you know the you know spanish surnamed you know teachers you know, like talking about natives as like being still being savages and like mm. uh you know like it so again it, it it's it, this is something that's much bigger than I think, uh, like, and it's, it is more, again, I think of a reflection of how our education institutions, but I think the paradigm that the, that education is being implemented, like, it, it is specifically designed to sort of to pit 
indigenous folks against those who kind of have a diaspora sort of experience, right? And so, yeah. you know, indigenous diasporas are nothing new, but, you know, and so that's why I, I, thought, I thought, like, you know, that sort of the presence of Purepechas you know, on the Yakima reservation was really fascinating. I was like, I, well, I was more interested to see how are Purepechas making kin with Yakimas, right? Like, how, oh, yeah. how, are those, how are those kinship relationships starting to develop independently of what the United States says they should, right? Um, right. And, and in addition so to like Filipino people, a large Filipino population. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And wow. we used to have a lot of Japanese before World War II. Uh, because yeah. again, we're a big agriculture community. So we had a lot of Japanese farms, farmers, farm right, workers. Right. Yeah. I do have a comment. Wow. Well, yeah. So yeah. <laughs> it, it just goes into maybe like the Northwest version of transnationalism, but you know, <laughs> but mm. you know, it's just a tribal transnationalism, those kinds of things. But um, yeah. that's a different subject. But that's that's also why I really think it's important for Comanche studies and Comancheria because it, it it gives way to that version that natives only talk to natives or natives only. Um, had interacted with non-natives on the Indian white level, you know, because right, it's definitely right. not the case, you know, uh, at least, you know, and I'm sure if, you know, Comanches um, had that ability, I know, you know, Yakimas, we have a, uh, we used to have a large trade with Japan in terms of like our apples and our exports of our ag, you oh, know, and things like that and our things like that. So it's just kind of like, there. I always think, when it, whenever I'd go anywhere, like if I went to a different country, which I've only been to once, uh, or other places, I'm like, I feel comfortable knowing that um, my relatives have always walked there. And it's almost like no right. matter where in the world, because it's like either our reach can go that far, because we don't have any um, like limitations on what we can do. It's like, hey, we can tap into this, we're going to do it, which I also speaks a lot to me and even to the relatives that I have. And my Comanche side is like, it's just like, I'm not going to be limited, even though you're trying to limit me. But that's the thing. I think it's really good that even now the current state, like you said, that uh, Jackhammer Reservation traded apples, was it, to, you know, yeah. over overseas. That itself is, mm -hmm. is a big accomplishment that people don't even know. Like, I don't even know until right now, right? So yeah. we, we still have great contributions to economics, you know, diplomacy, mm -hmm. and oh, yeah. we are not talking about that. What leads me to my comment I wanted to say is that, you know, oh, I have two comments. So one is when we talk about Comanche real studies and the importance of indigenous studies, Mexico, Mexico indigenous studies is as important because Camarilla was part in, or you know, Camarilla reaching to Mexico and our relationship to Mexico. Yeah. So we have to talk about Mexican nationalism, the, the Mexico being a colonial state. But I think now it's three comments. So that's, I think about <laughs> about how you know um, we need to learn the struggles of indigenous people south of the border and how indigenous people above the border don't really read indigenous scholars south of the border that much. I think you're really one right. of the very few people, Gregorio, that actually goes and, and knows about this stuff and talks about, you know, having relationships with people south of the border, you know, like communities or even like uh, scholars south of the border, which I really appreciate, you know. And I think more indigenous people from above the Mexico border and this colonial border need to have more in better relationship with indigenous people south of the border. And then the other thing, the other um, uh, 
comment, the second comment is that is that a lot of indigenous people south, you know, in, in Mexico or in, in Central America are talking about how indigenous people in in America in the U.S. are cuddling Chicanismo or Chicano activists, you know. So the Chicano activists will say we're all indigenous. They promote this anti-indigenous, you know, um, Jose Vasconcelos narrative, but then like totally this or totally ignoring the the history of colonization of Mexico and you know this mestizaje Mexican nationalism like but that's a, that's a thing Mexico I mean indigenous people in in the US don't know what what's right and wrong or what's the indigenous narrative in Mexico because we don't we don't pay attention to it right so we oh. when this chicano activist comes around and says we're all indigenous and and we're brown we're a shade of brown native people are like I guess we're not going to deny that. So I guess we're everybody in Mexico is indigenous, but that's wrong. And I think we need to like really, you know, if we want to push for our own, you know, like studies, indigenous studies, we should also be learning about other people's, which is literally not that far from us, just, you know, across that shitty border. And the third thing is, you know, um, Chicanos will say, oh, you know, I wasn't around when Chicanismo was, you know, some people were. <laughs> I wasn't around when Chicanismo or when Jose wrote his thing. So you can't really judge me. Chicani- you can't judge Chicanismo. But, dude, it's the same, it's the same narrative when, when uh, you know, like white people say, I wasn't around when the country was founded. I wasn't around when slavery was around. So why are you judging me? But there's still this fucking system right of, oh. of settler colonialism that exists so if you're not trying to get rid of it then you like i said benefit from it and you know you're you're you're, you're still supporting it so when chicanos say well i i didn't you know i don't agree with, with jose vasconcelos but i'm gonna you know support the third wave of chicanismo or whatever whatever the wave like it's, it's okay you might not support this dude's writing you acknowledge it's racist but chicanismo itself is still like very fucked up towards indigenous people in Mexico. So we got to talk about that as an ideology, you know? And I oh. think you can't just say, I wasn't around and I, I, oh, there's a new wave. Well, there's a lot of people that believe the old shit still, you know? And that this Chicanismo, people are still alive that were around when it went, when it was created. I mean, they're really old people now, but still, like, we got to talk about that stuff as native people, you know? And we got to oh. criticize, just like we criticize you know, you know, like DNA testing in the native community, you know, you know, so we got to criticize yeah. other stuff within indigenous studies, not just within ourselves, but within, we're going to help uh, indigenous people in Mexico with their criticisms of, of settler uh, colonialism in, in Mexico. So it's so, so much stuff we got to do, but, but it has to be done. It has to be said, you know? Mm. So, yeah. Mm. That's my rant. Yeah, you know, I, I, you know, there, there's, so, you know, one. I remember one, one way, like, uh, you know, when I was at UT Austin, and, um, you know, they have, you know, they, they, they have faculty there that were who are thought leaders within Chicano studies, Mexican American studies, Latino studies, and, uh, you know, and they're, they're very, they're very, their, their work is very thoughtful, and I think, you know, it's, it's coming from a good place, but I remember. Uh, there were some some colleagues of mine. Uh, you know, we're grad students, and so you know, we're of course we're you know, we're trying to <laughs> we're trying to push push the push the, the the boundaries in terms of what the hell we can do, and you know what's what's okay, what's not. But like, I remember you know like it, as as we were kind of 
in this space of, of, of uh, talking about sort of the, the the identity politics, but the, but again, like the but the historical trajectory of Chicanismo in Texas, in particular, um, you know, some some folks uh, were talking about uh, sort of that initial wave of, of 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 intellectuals as like as the the Chicano source Rex. Yeah, <laughs> like, 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 you know, so the like, like these guys being like so old, but like more importantly, but their their rhetoric and their their ideologies, you just kind of like being so out of tune that like it's almost like it it's almost inapplicable um, uh, today. And so like, so on one end, again, like I have to be like, I, so I am critical of like how that conversation happens, and yet I myself, you know, like. You know, it's it's really interesting to see how other indigenous folks like have to go through Chicano studies in in some way, shape, or form. <laughs> like, and some of us, you know, some of us are more critical of it. Others are, you know, but like, but but the point being, like, Chicano studies, like at least in the United States during a specific time, it allowed for a conversation of indigeneity, which Native studies in the United States did not facilitate, yeah. and so. It's like it's so it, it's almost like a, a fucked if you do, fucked if you don't narrative, yeah. which, again, is not to, I think, to justify, I think, the I think the doubling down on Vasconcelos is like really racist rhetoric. But it like it at least opened the door for us to think of indigeneities in a way that like was not just about U.S. based tribal sovereignty. And that's not again, that's not to say that that, that U.S. based conversation is wrong. Right. But like I think we have. But I think Chicano studies, again, at least for a time now, I'm now it's sort of it's a a different narrative. But I think like it has provided folks at least with an avenue to think of indigeneity in a way that is perhaps different than what they are exposed to at the primary and the secondary levels. And again, that's, so that is more in, in, in effect is much more of a reflection of the kind of messed up education system that we have in the United States and why like folks have to go into uh, like an ideology like Chicanismo in order to see something different. Right. Yeah. So it's, so it's, again, it's like, there, there's no easy answers to, to, I think, how Chicanismo like comes to terms with with its with its uh, kind of with its origins with with Vasconcelos and, and La Raza Cosmica, but like I think it is still really important that as as messed up as a narrative as that is, we still have young people that like are willing to like speak out against it and yeah. are wanting to at least move that conversation in a direction. And perhaps that's going to move those students into, you know, when they're going through their own identity experience, like where, you know, maybe perhaps it's going to move them away from Chicanismo altogether. Yeah. Um, but for folks like, for example, like uh, in New Mexico, where like Chicanismo has like a completely different history here than it does in Texas or California. Like it's just, it, it, yeah, it's just, it, there's no easy way to to like to kind of crack that nut, but like you said, it's <laughs> it's it's got to be done though. And like and, yeah, and I, I think hopefully yeah. you know like that that idea of like Comancheria studies, but even like a critical indigenous studies, like it offers a language that like and and I and I think like a focal point that I think allows folks to 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 
be thoughtful about how they look at Vasconcelos's stuff and like yeah. I said Manuel Gamio and even you know Moses uh, signs but like how those guys like you know we're, we're pushing some pretty messed up stuff against our relatives and why yeah. it is important for us to know those stories yeah that's the thing I think I think you know you you did bring up a really valid point that Chicanismo early you know the 60s brought up indigeneity but the thing is i think it was able to because it's a like again it's really harsh to hear but chicanismo is a settler colonial it's just a branch out of out of um mexican nationalism right so so it was able to bring this idea but without having indigenous people in presence so you know or maybe you know like you can say some of the some of the um um, children of immigrants were indigenous in Chicanismo now, you know what I'm saying? But the thing is, that's a thing. I had a, a, a Chicano professor here tell me that Chicanos are like the largest tribe of Native Americans in the U.S. And I was like, excuse me? You know, like if, Chica if Chicanismo cared about, you know, uh, Native people, they would be fighting for tribal sovereignty or the straightening of, of you know, making tribal sovereignty even stronger with, within Mexico, but it's not. You know what I'm saying? So it's that's the thing yeah. conversation we need to have about you know uh, Jose and Chicanismo and Mexican nationalism. Like, how do we promote you know Mexican sovereignty and not romanticize one fucking tribe? You know, but huh. I mean, again, this this always goes back to something that we even discussed. I think in our previous episodes, it's just like this wanting to belong. And exactly. it has like, it seems like that's that's the root of it. And it's like, that's where the nationalism comes from. That's where the rhetoric comes from because they know that there was this trauma within these um, communities where it's like, maybe I, I'm not sure where I come from. Maybe I'm not sure. And it's like, this is where I'm going to gravitate to because he definitely knows where I come from. You know, he's telling me the origins, you know, his version of it. And it's just kind of like, trying to find a way because I, I found this even when I went to the university uh, in Seattle, things like that. Uh, even when I was in Chicano studies, it was um, always a question of belonging. And that's where it, it comes from us talking about commentary and always talking about the adoptive practices and things like that of like being claiming that you're something, but also having that other side claim you as you had mm -hmm. mentioned uh, earlier, which I think is important. And it's just kind of like, Sometimes it's hard for me as a native person because it's like I can't really claim you, you know. <laughs> it's like right. uh, because I it, it's just me. I'm just one person, but you know it would be like a, a tribal thing that would need to happen, and it just has to go with like almost the genesis of why you're being claimed for what either you're born into it or you put in the work to that community. Exactly. You know, you put in the work to being a part of that. But sometimes that's where I feel like a lot of that comes from. It's just, and it's, it's kind of disheartening for me. Sometimes it almost makes me kind of sad because it's like, it's almost someone trying to make a whole nation believe that they belong to this thing because this nation wants to belong to something, you know, or these people, you know, want to belong to that. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 really hard, you know. Um, but but even like, uh, it's it's just, we have a lot of t conversation to do, a lot of work to do ourselves within Native Academia, you know. And I think um, I just appreciate everybody's contribution to it because you know people, I people you know like just 
it's it's hard. I mean, like everybody has different opinions and 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 then just petty things going on. But I think you know we we if we all sat down, you know, like and just talked about it instead of just bickering online, it will be so much easier, you know. But that's just <laughs> <laughs> that's just my opinion. But um, yeah. you know, I I do appreciate. Robin, do you have any questions for Gregorio before I end this? Or Gregorio, do you have any comments? Um, I'll, let, I'll, let, I'll let Robin go first. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what, okay, so what are you hoping the impact would be on the state of New Mexico or even Texas with the introduction of Comancheria studies and Comanche studies? Like, are you hoping to see something besides just awareness and like a higher consciousness of the contributions or you just like, mm. is there's like an actual like thing <laughs> that you're hoping to come out of it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, it, 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 it is certainly a labor of love and it's something that I have, uh, I, I, I really think our, I think New Mexico in particular is deserving of, you know, and particularly in terms of uh, just as a way of acknowledging, I think, the diversity within which, like, histories and lived experiences of indigenous self-determination continue to thrive in this place. And the the fact that there are, uh, you know, Taos Comanche families uh, that uh you know have been able to maintain uh both uh their own cultural traditions as well as their relationships to Comanche families in New Mexico as well as in in, in Oklahoma like I I feel like there's uh I don't know I just I've I've been given the opportunity to receive a world-class education in all of these different places that I've been able to go to. And I feel like it's now it's my responsibility to give that knowledge back to the places where it came from. And so as, as, as a way to do that, um, you know, I would like to find a way uh, to kind of somehow, you know, because I know now that, you know, the Comanche Nation College is now defunct. And so, I mean, that was, that would have been a great ass place to, to drop this knowledge on. Right? Oh my goodness. <laughs> but, um, you know, but, I, but even just like thinking about uh, like a learning community in New Mexico, but, but some kind of a, an entity which allows, I think, these families to be able to have a more direct relationship with our relatives in Oklahoma uh, or what uh, so I don't know like but I, I think the point is is that there's in doing this work I feel like there is a very uh, deep historical precedent upon which we can utilize in order to re-envision how and what the boundaries of tribal self-determination and political self-rule like what those things look like because um you know what we see here in the paso del norte for example like with um a lot of maya uh, political refugees you know fleeing guatemala because of state-sponsored violence and atrocities against maya communities the fact that you have these refugees stuck in ciudad juarez and they're unable to they're they're unable to cross because of some you know xenophobic racist you know policies being uh, implemented by the current administration. 
you know, what, what's kind of, uh, you know, as, as much of a shit storm as that is, the, the silver lining in all of that is how those same Maya families are still independently developing their own relationship with Raramuri peoples in, you know, in, Mex- in, in Ciudad Juarez and with other indigenous peoples uh, in that really major, uh, you know, Mexican metropolis, right? Um, and at the same time, on the other side of that border is Isla del Sur Pueblo, which is, you know, it has the only urban Indian reservation in the United States. It's right along the U.S.-Mexico border. And, you know, they, you know, and they're having their tribal sovereignty and self-determination being eroded by U.S. federal courts, by the Fifth Circuit Court in particular, uh, because for whatever reason, this, well, you know, it's the state of Texas is what it is, is that yeah. the state of Texas is racist. And so, uh, you know, they don't want to they don't want to acknowledge or they don't want to provide political parity for the Pueblo to be able to pursue its own economic development projects uh, like the Alabama Coshada, as well as even the Kickapoo down in Eagle Pass, Texas. That's so what Comanche's that's do. That's the thing. Comanche's been trying to yes. do yeah, economic uh, yeah, ventures so, in, in, in Texas, and it's like, no. It's like, why right. not? You know? so. so that's the thing, right? Is that is that, okay, so for Texas, having however millions of people that it has in it, the fact that it only has three federally recognized tribes exactly. is like, that speaks now. volumes about what that state thinks about, like, native presences as well yep. as native histories right and so like and so again like in this area in this region in this region is 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 a is is a space that i feel has much to teach us in terms of like what comanche ancestors in particular like the creativity that they had to be able to be like you know what like we're actually going to develop our own political relationships with with a Mexican state government instead of with with this you know non almost non-existent federal Mexican government, yeah, and they did it in a way that was distinctly on their terms. So like yeah, like if that's not fucking inspiring to Comanches, I don't know. Like <laughs> it, like it, it. I mean, it it is incredibly like I think it it just shows that like there's so much that we can learn, but I think at the Okay, sorry about that. I, yeah, I, I, I hope I wasn't I wasn't yeah, on yeah. too long of a rant there. No, no, I, no. But yeah, I, I agree <laughs> with you. I think my my experiences here in Texas. I live in San Antonio. My experiences here in Texas is that the, the, the Texas government is a piece of shit when it comes to native issues, and it's just the Indian politics here is so fucking weird, right? Like I have, yeah, I call Comanches, and they're like, dude. We don't, we don't even fuck with the shit down there from Oklahoma. Yeah, I'm more like, yeah. no way, dude. I was like, what the fuck? I mean, I've even had like other people claim Comanche history as their own, like the council house fight here in San Antonio. I was like, that's Comanche Ooh. history. And they were like, oh, we didn't know that. Well, motherfucker, like, why are you claiming it as your history? Like, this is really weird Ooh. here in Texas. Like, like, yeah, I think. This is but a, again, yeah. like it, it, it just it, it shows, like it just it shows a very concerted effort on the part of like sort of Texas nationalism. Because remember, Texas was oh. itself an own fucking yeah. country. Which again, we, we oftentimes we forget. Like the whole reason why it became its own country was actually because of the British. Like the British were the ones who were footing the bill in order to sow like discord and discontent in Texas to to secede from the United States. So like. Yeah. Like so again, like 
how that narrative itself being like embedded in white supremacy, like these things are not like they're just they're, they're not circumstantial. Like these are very like purposeful. And so to like and, and so to, to even bring up a, like a, another point in, in terms of Texas's sort of uh, romanticization of Comanches in a very weird way, like there's this Texas Boy Scout troop in I think it's in Odessa. Uh, but in the panhandle and you can yeah you can look this up man it's like but um they're called the quahati the quahati uh comanche dancers but what it is is it's a it's a boy scout troop of all these white dudes playing indian i think i saw that online yeah but and, that's, that's the and so the yeah. and so the the, the really met so the, i i think on the flip side um in new mexico because not only you had these boy scouts in texas doing it but you also had boy scouts in colorado also also taking these sacred dances from zuni and from other public communities uh and so to the point where the state government like i mean the, the legislation was presented it, I, they ended up tabling it but the point is is that natives like they were like holy shit like here are these people that are clearly have no relationship to these communities. And yet here are, here they are appropriating, uh, you know, both social and like sacred dances, like of these tribal nations. Right. And so, so then the state then like, or these groups then start saying, well, we need to, we need to protect native dances. And so like that kind of brings up a really peculiar position for my community and uh, in particular, because as non-citizen Comanches, like that, that legislation runs the risk of impacting us because we yeah. don't have CDIDs and we don't have these kinds of, again, these markers that show us to be Comanche citizens, right? And yet, like our connections to that place, as well as our relationships to Comanche families, are like they pre-exist the U.S. settler state by centuries. So, like. So there, so there is some. So like I said, like this idea of Comancheria studies, like it has one goal really is to try and educate people about the depths to which Comanche history exists in New Mexico, but how those presences are maintained by these families and these communities in ways that you know must at least be acknowledged by our Comanche relatives if we're not to be subjected to these kinds of policies which are being, again, they're, they're being designed to, with very good intentions, but the issue is, is that they run the risk of impacting the very kinds of people who actually should be utilizing those protections themselves. You see what I'm saying? I have a question. Yeah. Um, so me and Robin had this conversation, and I think me and you also had this conversation separately, you know? And yeah. um, do you think, since, you know, Henisados or having this relationship with Comanches and and, you know, this is going to be really, like, a very, like, straight-up question. So, do you think Henita Settles would, would want to be, um, would ever be, like, want to be considered as, like, another band of Comanches? Or do you think mm. keeping them as, like, a separate sovereign tribe is, is, is you know, like, I don't know. I've, I, don't, I don't, I think you're the yeah. only Henny said, I don't uh. know. So what, what, what do you think they right. or the people would want? And, you know. Yeah. Well, I mean, so here's the thing is that, you know, um, there are so many different, okay. So the Henny of communities that I work in, uh, so one being my own and the other one, the Pueblo de Abiquiu, 
and um and there are, there are others that are south near Albuquerque and like those and those like they have their own histories and so like I, I have to be very mindful about how I approach this because I really do believe that you know these communities have the right to self-determine their own political destinies and yeah. whether that it, whether that means pursuing federal recognition or state rec whatever the hell that means to them that, that they they have to do it in the way in, in that's in accordance with their community and the way that their elders look at their history right and and the way that their community is 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 created now that being said um in where i come from in branches of taos and talpa and llano quemado like these families uh you know there's a very distinct understanding of our relationships to comanches and particularly to the comanche nation in a way um, that does not exist in other Hinisado spaces. And so, yeah. um, you know, I, so personally, like, it would be great if the Comanche Nation were in a position to want to think about citizenship uh, for folks like us, who, again, who have these well, like, well-grounded relationships with the tribe, and yet um, it seems like the political reality of the nation right now is something quite different. And <laughs> yeah. so it's like, yeah. you have to be like, on one end, we have to, you know, there's an idealism that, you know, I, I think is, is still important to have. And yet, um, there's also a reality that, you know, um, there's still this myth about, you know, economic opportunism, that if you open up the tribal roles, all these people are going to come out of the woodworks yeah. and then it's just going to make the pie smaller for everyone else, which is again, which is bullshit. That's I think, a, it's I think a bullshit. it is bullshit. Yeah, I agree with you. But, but again, like, but again, like the, uh, but that that rhetoric is so ingrained oh. in I think the way we think about ideas of federal recognition exactly. that I think for uh, Hinisado communities to independently pursue that, like I'll, I'll give you an example, like in the Pueblo de ABQ, every time that pueblo has has even considered the idea of pursuing federal recognition, there is like this immediate pushback from land, from, uh, from landowners in particular, from property holders up there because that property is beautiful, but, uh, but it's essentially all, oh, they just want to have a casino up there. Right. And so like, oh so th there's like, a, again, so there's an education, like th there's a need to educate people about why it is that, for example, like in, uh, in in the Taos Valley, for example, why this Hinisado community, but particularly these Hinisado, uh, but I think these Comanche families, these Taos Comanche families in these communities, like they have a very distinct history and a very distinct relationship and, and cultural experience and traditions that um, are that again, that, that distinguish us from our other Hinisaro relatives in a way that, uh, again, like it kind of demands that we explore those ideas, uh, like in a, in a way that's mindful of what those distinctiveness, like what that, what that distinctiveness looks like. Right. Yeah. Um, because other Hinisaro communities have very different visions of what they see themselves as doing. And, you know, and to be honest with you, like, you know, what's really, what's been really sad is that some of them have been quite, uh, you know, overt and wanting to uh, kind of double down on using DNA as their oh, verifying on. factor yeah. of indigenousness. And to me, that yeah. 
I just, I, I, I personally, I cannot support something like that. It's just yeah. fucking racist, and it's, I just see it as wrong. But, you know, other people, you know, other people and even other tribes, that's the thing, is that other tribes have also internalized that colonial rhetoric and have then applied it onto their own citizens. So, like, if, so if there's a way for the Comanche Nation to sort of um, empower itself, yeah, to I see us you. as their relatives, you know, like what, what, a, what a better tribe to be able to do that with, because I, I like feel we, we, yeah, go ahead. You know what I mean? Yeah. I feel I like know. if I, you guys wanted to be like another band of Comanches, I, I, I would say, you know, like, I, Comanches should recognize you as Comanches, but that's my opinion. There, there are Comanches that are really, I would say it's really stupid. Like they're against like one, even like one ace enrolling right there there's like four, right. four, four blood quantum and they're all about this like per cap but look at now with covid do you really think we're gonna get co uh, per cap because you know the casinos are closed no not that much so what per, per cap is not really like like essential to you know like us you know like i don't know talking about enrollment yeah, so, so, no, but, so that's, you know, that's the thing though is that when you when yeah. you start seeing uh, but okay what i talk about it as is like there, there is this cultural economy of bloodism now that exists yeah. in the academy that, for better or for worse, tribes are now purposing in a way to, again, like to, to kind of distinguish the haves and the have-nots, right? And what's unfortunate is that um, for many folks, you know, when I was working in, in Santa Barbara and, you know, working with Chumash who... Uh, you know, too much students who got disenrolled, you know, because their, you know, their grandfather pissed off the tribal chair or something. But the fact that like tribes can do that kind of shit to yeah. their relatives is really disconcerting, right? But obviously, it's not unique and it's not anything that it has not happened before. But the 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 challenge then becomes, well, how do we see beyond that cultural policy, po that cultural economy of bloodism in a way? That allows, so what my argument is, why not allow Comanches to determine for themselves who Comanches are rather than ceding this ground to the United States and to this, this racist blood quantum standard that has absolutely no reason for being within a Comanche context to begin with because yeah, the us. very notion of a full-blood Comanche is kind of erroneous. It doesn't make sense because yeah. of how many... You yeah. know what I mean? Can like, we pause? Can we pause real quick? Yeah, yeah. Oh, hold on. So I do have to say, oh, okay. I do agree. Yeah, yeah. Robin left a little bit, but I do agree that um, I see you as Comanche. You know, like that's that's my point of view. So there's some Comanches, like I said, that are all about blood quantum, all about per cap. I'm I'm not for that shit, right? Like I think oh. um, you, you're right. Like. The whole notion of like a full blood Comanche is is asinine to, in my point of view. We we talk about blood quantum because a lot of us were we took in captives, you know, we took in captives, and we we talk about the whole even that that the population boom within the Comanches, you know, during the you know sixteen and seventeen hundreds, it wasn't just because babies, right? Yeah, <laughs> it yeah. was because of you know like the whole culture of adoption and captives and right. all these things so you know so to for for comanches to be like oh no like there's this this bloodisms like blood quantums or whatever to me is asinine i think um you know we have to acknowledge 
Comanches have to enlarge our past and to leave at least your band or at least that band of Henisados behind is is disservice. You know what I'm saying? And that's just only my point of view. And I, I, I appreciate, you know, Catherine Harris adopting you, you know, and I think it was the right move and you are Comanche in my point of view, you know, but you know, it's, it sucks that, um, there are Comanches that feel this way that, you know, with blood quantum and per cap and you, you're just thinking about economics, you know, and, and I don't know, man, Robin, do you have any, any input? Yeah. Um, this is something that I think Rick and I talk about quite a bit actually. And you did kind of touch on it already, just the reciprocity of claiming and being claimed. And I think that has a lot to do with it. And the fact that, um, you can, trace your family or you can trace yourself you don't even need to trace your blood but like you can trace your family to a comanche person i think you know because i'm going to be honest like again as i've I've told rick before it's like i didn't necessarily grow up comanche i had a comanche dad you know he on paper was a full-blood comanche but he said he goes but i'm not you know he's he was wichita he you know uh you know, looking into our past, we had a lot of uh, Mexican and Spanish captives in our family. And uh, my mom remembers being her, uh, like, grandmother-in-laws calling her Consuelo all the time. My mom's name's Connie. And, you know, she was like, what? Oh, okay. You know, and it's just cool. was something new for her because, um, again, like we had said, there was there really is no really such thing as like a full blood Comanche because for me to be Comanche, you're acknowledging that you're multicultural, that you're multi-tribal because of Mm. just what that culture kind of encapsulates. For me, that's how I interpret Mm -hmm. it here in the Northwest and the way that my father used to talk about it. And um, so, yeah, it's, it's, and I'm going to be honest. I didn't know much about Henisro until I listened to that first podcast you were on, and that just really opened up my mind and opened up my world. I was like, what? I didn't know. Like, it made total sense, you know, after I listened to it. It was like, duh, of course. Like, of course that would, you know, happen, and that would be there, and that would be present. But for, you know, and I want to also acknowledge, like, when uh, Rick talks about, like, natives in in the northern uh, border or the, the imaginary border above that border, like they don't always acknowledge indigenous people from Mexico or uh, any other indigenous people. A lot of it is because we talk about the lack of education that even just general Americans have about native people, Mm -hmm. native people on top of that being educated on reservations, you know, as we talk about being um, educated by non-natives who have their own rhetoric in place for whatever it is they want to, um, have these natives believe or think of to impact their life, we're definitely not educated about people, yeah. um, oh. especially indigenous people living in Mexico who are from Mexico. And the only way that I was ever introduced to that are the ones that uh, were actually sitting next to me in class, you know, from Oaxaca, you know, and stuff like oh. that. And then I, it was just me reaching out and asking, and I was like, well, why did you say that you had to learn both Spanish and English? You know, and then he uh, went into his story. I was like, oh, my God. You know, and again, a mind-blowing moment. You know, it's like, oh, that makes total sense. But, um, and again, it's just kind of going back to belonging and claiming and the reciprocity of that is, yeah, I, I mean, I agree with everything that you guys are saying. And, again, I, it's such a, 
a valuable learning experience for me right now. Um, I'm always, you know, sometimes Rick and I both talk about on that, that forefront is like, I'm not enrolled Comanche. So sometimes I don't always feel like I have the authority to say things about them um, because I, I, my uh, knowledge of like the family systems and things like that is just limited to what my father taught us. And sometimes mm. my father with his own traumas, you know, had limited what he had taught us because, you know, he was kind of looking for his new start, his new things. Um, and he also just really fell in love with our traditions up here too. Like, and that was something that I also felt from my Comanche relatives that I had noticed. It's just this ability to adapt and this ability to kind of be wherever you are. And right, um, right, right. My, my father was so big on learning Yakima traditions and customs. His you know, his fathers and his uncles, they went out to the Shoshone Bannock tribe. You know, there was a large PBC family over that way. And then we have some in Colorado. We have some in New Mexico. So it's like just my immediate family almost reflects for me the the spirit and the history of Comanche people in general, which is, you know, despite that Native people don't want to, um, like, integrate into other things or assimilate, it was the easiest thing. And it's like a natural thing that I felt mm. the Comanche people were able to do. And that's why they were such a large impact on history. And as mm -hmm. well as just, that's why I feel like my family history was, has been impacted by a lot of worldly things that come in because, you know, Comanche people are everywhere. You know, you can't throw over a rock. You know, there's Comanche people <laughs> over there, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think I think you're, you're talking about your dad a little bit, Robin. Your dad was the only Comanche I know that likes EO as much as I do. <laughs> I was just like, was I love you. <laughs> my mom, well, again, so my mother's Yakima, my dad was Comanche, and they met at high school, and uh, in the 1970s, and um, uh, he he followed her over to the Northwest, and like I said, he integrated a lot into our plateau culture here, and he, my my grandfather, on my mother's side, took him eeling, and it freaked him out. Like everything freaked him out when he came here, just like the large hills, because you know there yeah. isn't any large hills and mountains in Oklahoma and stuff like that. He was like, "Whoa!" Um, but I always love hearing the stories of how like those things scared him, but he made it a part of his life, and that's kind of what I felt like. I feel like when I read Comanche history, is like, sure, we might be scared of like going into these territories and things, but you know, as you mentioned before, it's like we're going to make our presence known. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's it's. I think it's it's hard for. I think more Comanches need to hear about the Hennie settles, you know, and and, yes, and yes. you know, be aware that, you know, we gotta build relationships and and acknowledge, you know, uh, families, Hennie settle families, and I I'm I'm you know I'm fine with, you know. Comanches, you know, like adopting or like, you know, enrolling all these Hanisito families, you know, I just think mm. we got to bring more awareness. That's it, you know, and um, yeah. Well, this, this, is, this is a step in the right direction. And yeah. I really do appreciate both of you really kind of op uh, providing a, an opportunity for us to, especially, you know, for me to learn about your stories and, you know, the, again, I think the, the the fact that um you know it being, being both hinisaro and, and comanche it's kind of like it's <laughs> kind of being on 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 one end of the coin where you're you where you know our, our 
our histories are, are strategically silenced. And then on the other side of the coin where uh, our history is, it, it is known, but it's, but it's presented in a way where our community is not seen as a part of it. And yeah. so I think the, our, our ability to be able to, to talk about those experiences in a way, uh, bring in our families, bring in our ancestors to, 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 to be, I think, just in community with each other. And I think that's, you know, if there's anything that's, you know, uh, quite Comanche about it is the, the capacity to make community wherever we, wherever we're going. Right. Mm -hmm. And yeah. that willfulness to do that. Um, and so, you know, wh whether or not, you know, Comancheria studies can sort of facilitate something like that is, I, I, I would hope that it could, um, but I really do appreciate you all at least give, you know, providing the opportunity to, to talk about these sorts of things, because again, you know, these are, these are questions and conversations that, you know, it's, it's, it's been, you know, I, I've been, you know, devoting my whole life, you know, to, to, to talking about, but I think, uh, you know, with the sort of current state of affairs that we see things with, and um, it just, it makes it that much more important for us to talk about how those relationships connect us rather than the way that they uh, kind of create a schism uh, and you know they don't allow us to see uh, not, not only just the complexity of, of tribal histories but also uh, I think what uh, the what those living legacies can look like and what those futures can be mm -hmm. and so you know, I just, I, I really want to thank you both for um, just let it, yeah, just let, let, letting this conversation happen the way that it should. So I think, and I think you are, I know you talk about New Mexico a lot too, but I think you are in a very specific, I think New Mexico itself is a very, right now is a very like unique place where there's a lot of like decolonial and radical indigenous politics kind of coming out of it, which I appreciate. You know, I, I'm watching the, you know, like leftist, uh, indigenous, you know, um, the colonial politics coming out of New Mexico. I'm like, that's this is where it's coming out of, <laughs> you know. Out yeah, of this, man. Like, no, this, there, there's, yeah. that's like, like I said, man, you know, 1680, man, Pueblo Revolt. Like <laughs> this, this place <laughs> has been a fertile, like it, it has been so fertile for indigenous, like political theorists. Yeah leaders you know like community organ like th this is it and it doesn't even have to be just those based in new mexico right but yeah. like like but it there is something that is very beautiful and i think in many ways i have to really give thanks like to our pueblo relatives in yeah. particular because they've been the ones who have been like really kind of maintaining those fields in a way that allows comanches like, <laughs> and others like to really get to educate ourselves right? right and so you know it's it's precisely again in those in those relationships that we build with our pueblo relatives and with that and with our other indigenous relatives south of that border that like it it just there, there's something beautiful happening here and so if comancheria studies can be a part of that conversation then fuck yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and sign me up i want to be in this exactly exactly <laughs> Yeah. So do you have any uh, questions or comment, Robin, before we close this? Uh, no, I think I said what I what I wanted to say. Okay. Just thank you so much for coming on. And again, everything you've been uh, saying is just super interesting. And um, it's making my brain work. And uh, thank you. 
Yeah. yeah. Thanks, Gregorio. You know, I think um, before I close this out, I want to share um, a tiny memory with Gregorio, right? We're, me, we, me and Gregorio were in Hawaii last year, last summer. Was it last year, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. And then we we're going up to Mauna Kea, and then I was like, we stopped at a coffee shop. I was in one van. There was two vans, I think. And then I was like, you know what? I'm going to go in the van with Gregorio and Lee Francis, right? <laughs> so I, I jumped in that van. It was like only four of us in there with Juanita, too. And then you guys were talking yeah, about Star yeah. Wars. And I was like, I think Ray's a Palpatine. And you guys were like, what? <laughs> but I was right. <laughs> Ray you became... were fucking right, man. You were right. <laughs> Yeah, but it's, it's really, it was really good talking nerd shit with you and Francis, you know, Lee Francis, uh, <laughs> in that van. Very powerful moment. Yeah. Heading man. to Mauna Kea and, you know, right before all that Mauna Kea stuff happened, you know, and um, I know it was still happening. It was, it was happening during that time. Yeah. 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 But, you know, it was really good. But, um, yeah, I, I really appreciate the conversations we had in Hawaii and, you know, talking about... All these, all these stuff about Genisaros and Camancheria and, you know, decolonial theories. And um, that's why I jumped the van. I was like, I'm going to talk to Gregorio. <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah, I, I appreciate you com yeah, coming on the air here on our show. And, and uh, I look forward to visiting you soon after COVID. So, you know, but mm. yeah. But yeah. 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 No, thank you, man. If, you know, if there's, if, you know, if, if I can leave us with uh, some parting words, actually, uh, from actually from our Kanaka Maoli relatives, um, uh, actually from so from Lanakila Mangali, um, you know, he shared something with us during that trip that I think was really, uh, it really left a, it really left a, a mark on me uh, in a very beautiful way, and it was something that I actually got to share with one of my students uh, when I was teaching this class on Indigenous borderlands uh, at. At Colorado College, and so I, I kind of wanted to, uh, among Gawi, um, but I wanted to, to, to share this this quote with you because it just it, it really hit, and I think it really emphasizes I think where, uh, hopefully you know we can take this conversation further, right? Uh, but uh, he he shared with us he said, or the land is chief, the people are the servants. Mm -hmm. So. As long as we, as you know, place-based peoples and you know Comanches and all the you know the the many places that we 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 were both been to and where we're going to be, um, you know, I just you know keep keeping those ancestral teachings in mind and keeping those good thoughts at the you know at the center. Um, I just really want to thank you both for this opportunity. So um, yeah, that thank you. Thank you. All right. <laughs>